Daniel Broadus. Good to sit down with you, man. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. How's your trip to Minnesota been so far? It was great. Um, I got the the red carpet rolled out for me, mm-hmm. obviously, at the Stecker Castle. The flight out here from Chicago was great. Had my own um, row, both both sides of the plane. Yeah, we, we reserved that for you. Yeah. On the line called ahead and yeah. they said, we want to make sure that our guest has has room to lay out. Right. No, I highly recommend, you know, you take take the offer. up. Yeah. So you came up north of Minnesota and it was 98 degrees yesterday. Yeah, it's been pretty mm-hmm. hot. It's been hot in Ohio too lately. So yeah. What do you think about that video? It came out, man, I might've been, I think I was in college at the time. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, it was that one individual that basically was saying like, like no, I, I don't have a, know. what's that? I already know. Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> uh, Jesus is greater than religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's basically saying, wait, I don't need a religion. I just need Jesus. Yeah. So what, what do you think about that? Well. Are you pulling it up, Bennett? Yeah. Yeah. Why I hate religion, but love Jesus. Yeah. Right. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't need to watch the whole thing. Trying to get clicks. See how many views there are. 35 million views. So Oof. this guy had, this guy had a lot of impact. He's, he, had, yeah. he had more impact than what we're going to have here in this conversation. <laughs> Unless it Bennett, I don't know. Let's see what kind of magic Bennett did. You remember this video though? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, well, the, the thing is. Jesus greater than religion. Yeah. told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? He's going to give me an aneurysm. (laughs) (laughs) But in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace. All right, pause it right there. So what do you think so far? He made a lot of assertions there. Yeah, I Yeah, I I think that uh you can you can always engage in just the raw definition of what religion is. Um you know, religion is a practice of beliefs, a commonly, you know, a, a set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what he's engaging in is putting forth a belief. Mm-hmm. And there's just as much religion to what he is preaching um, as what he appears to reject. So he's, he's making assertion of truths and just the fact that he's got 35 million views. The idea is now let's get a collection of people that also agree with that. Yeah. And then let's do something as a community because we right. stand behind this credo. Yeah. And I would qualify some of those views aren't necessarily, you know, because I've probably watched that, you know. And yeah. I, but yeah, right, like yeah. he has reach and there are plenty of people that probably um identify with his message and so that, that's a, that's a religion yeah right i, so I, I mean, think it takes on religious you know identity yeah um yeah so i i just i can't take it too seriously i think that uh, but a lot of people do and maybe a lot of the maybe a lot of the viewers right now have watched that video and that's, that's impacted true. their christian walks yeah. i think it's worthwhile to say you know yeah like concretely like steel man where he's coming from and then like, how would we work against that? Because I think one of the good points that you're making right now is what he's talking about here. That's mm-hmm. certainly not Clement. That's certainly right. not Augustine. Yeah, that's yeah. certainly not Jerome. Mm-hmm. And if someone says, well, well, why? So if I take Clement and I take whoever this guy is, I don't know his name. Mm-hmm. Why would I take Clement over this guy? Mm-hmm. And one of the good arguments would be, well, because Clement knew all of these people that 
were ordained by Peter and Paul. So he's living in this time where, mm-hmm. where this Christian faith is, once again, it's not developing and getting better and it's waiting for to 2010 or whenever this video came out. It's not like it's going to reach, we're finally going to get it in 2010 when this guy says whatever he says. Yeah. It's in its prime to some degree. These people that knew Jesus and yeah. people that walked with the people that walked with Jesus. And then Clement's walking and dealing with these things. There's, you know, Irenaeus yeah. and there's some of these other guys as well. So if they are, if they are preaching something and teaching something contrary to what this guy is saying, I think right off the bat, we as Christians should be able to say, we'll take Clement over this guy, right? Yeah. And we should. Right. Well, and I think the point that you're making is just that they, if you make that kind of claim about uh, the claim about, he says something in there about divorce and, and the old, yeah, and the old, he called religious people whores. Well, there's that. There, there's one he, that's completely out of context. Yeah. So what, what's what he's saying there that God is almost calling religious people whores. Yeah. And whenever God, and he does use that language, he says, mm-hmm. you know, why are you spreading your legs to these foreign gods right. and all of that? Yeah. Not, he's not blaming them for doing religion especially in the way that god himself has set up yeah. but rather that they have stopped doing the religion that god has set up and they're doing well, the religious yeah, practice point, of too. these foreign ones so that there's one little data point like he's yeah. completely taking that yeah. out of context and when the lord does do that and when he does accuse israel and you know the the ways that he does he's not then validating that lifestyle right yeah um, but he's not the, saying you guys are sacrificing to me in the way that i told you to sacrifice and therefore you're whores like, yeah so yeah, that one seems certainly completely out of context. Yeah, oh, nice. tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever been divorced. Like this is why I say it's hard to take it seriously, is because it is intellectually lazy. Mm-hmm. Intellectually lazy. All they're doing is uh, attacking straw men. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, people will talk about how Christians start wars, how Christians um, are bad tippers, how Christians don't care about. Um, you know, they're against abortion, but, you know, are you going to adopt? That's the thing is like, you're against abortion. Are you going to adopt now? And just hold on a second, look at the data, and you'll find that Christians are very philanthropic. Mm-hmm. They do adopt. You know, Christians have done uh, great advances in medicine and all the various uh, ministering to the various needs of the body. Mm-hmm. Christians do a lot of, you know, and they engage in a lot of love of their neighbor. In the bubonic plague, or a couple of these plagues, Christians went into the cities when all the wealthy people went out of the cities. Yeah. Because they went in, they said, we need to go take care of these people, even if it means I'm going to catch the disease. I mean, plug in your connection with modern day COVID and shutting down homes, you know, all our churches and staying at home. Um, But yeah, there's, there's example after example. And are there times when they don't do that? Sure. But, you know, for the most part, if you took the, if you took the history of Christianity and the religion of Christianity and the gathering of Christians within church with pastors, all these types of things yeah. in in sanctuaries and in churches. Yeah. Those people take I would take that against any other group over history. Yeah. To say there's ups and downs for sure, but overarch you know, overwhelmingly yeah. they've been much more philanthropic, much more yeah. have much and, more. Mercy. You know, like and here's one you all you'll often hear is the claim that we start a lot of wars. Like name one war that we started. Or, you know, like, give me, give me some examples. Maybe the readily accessible one will be, um, the 30 years war. Well, it's very complex. There's other issues like the, the kind of the beginning of nationalism Mm -hmm. and modern kind of national 
nation states in Europe. And there's all kinds of other things that have at play. Mm-hmm. Uh, to simplify it, it would be, well, Roman Catholics aggressing against Protestants, but that would be an oversimplification because the French, who were, which was a Roman Catholic nation, ended up towards the end of the Thirty Years' War is on the side of the Protestants. So we have, we can't say that this is strictly speaking Christians. These, there are other things at play. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that it, you know what? When people take their convictions seriously, we should take a moment to consider those convictions and not be dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. Of it. And that is dismissive. Yeah. That's why, you know, like, how are you going to take it seriously? Because the deck's already stacked against you. Um, and it does remind me of St. Polycarp, Polycarp of Smyrna. And I think most people today would just be completely scandalized by this move. So Polycarp is being, uh, he's been taken to the arena to be eaten he, alive. He's a disciple of John, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and into the arena be eaten alive. Uh, St. Ignatius writes a letter to Polycarp as mm-hmm. well. Um, but in the, test, the the account of his martyrdom, he stands there before the emperor and the emperor's like, you know, plead your case. Tell me what it is that you teach and all this stuff. And Polycarp says, emperor, tell me a date and a time and I will explain these things to you. And then he turns around to the masses and he says, but to them, I will not. It, these bloodthirsty, you know, no. And I think uh, a lot of Christians today would be like, hold up. Mm-hmm. Um you're not going to become all things all men that some might believe. And I think that there's, I think that there's something to be said for shaking the dust from your feet. I think that Polycarp Mm -hmm. is shaking the dust from his feet at that moment. The emperor also isn't seriously interested either, because if he was, he would have set a date and time to meet up with Polycarp and ask about these teachings. Mm -hmm. But he's just kind of like, ah, never mind, whatever. So they go through with the, with the execution. Mm -hmm. So, I think that, you know, we shouldn't, we have to be careful not to cast our pearls before swine. Yeah. It, yeah. it also says something about the pearl. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, you hear these things here and there and um, we have to be willing to address them, but how that we address them, I think will matter too. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't have, yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you think about the, he made some, he said something about, uh, what it's up a little bit, Bennett. Uh, bu- 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 why does it why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? And I mean that's mm-hmm. th- that's a miscategorization because it's not an either or, yeah. right? But but obviously what he's getting at is he's saying okay, well the church doesn't care for the poor, but it does build big churches. Um, mm-hmm. That's something that's probably one that I think resonates with more people. I've heard that in more discussions um, where people will say you know, well, we don't need nice communion wear or mm-hmm. why do people build nice sanctuaries? Like we should just, we should be giving that money to charities and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that notion? Um, well, yeah, yeah that's, uh, I, first off the beautiful things that we can have are available to everyone. Uh, so if we have like this beautiful chalice, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, you'll be able to come and partake of the body and the blood of Christ with those vessels. Mm-hmm. And so it belongs to the poor as much as it does to the rich. And so I think that there's something there. Um, and then also, you know, we should say, you know, that uh, the, the, the scriptures repeatedly tell us 
not to be partial to the poor or to the rich. So there's something about who God is that de- that both demands and, and conveys the sense of true and perfect order mm-hmm. and impartial justice and righteousness. And so this idea of that somehow we have to deprive some in order to accommodate others when taken to two extremes or, you know, misappropriated, I think is just as much an injustice as what he's trying to highlight. Mm. Um, the other thing is when people talk about donating to um, charities, I'm personally, I'm just a little bit wary sometimes of charities. I, unless I know that it's a, a legitimate charity, I will not just donate to charities. Mm-hmm. And there, there's plenty of charities that take advantage of the, good intentions of Christians and and how much money goes to the administration of those charities and so forth and those nonprofits. Like, so there's, again, it's a very complex issue and it's really what's being hurled is just accusations and no real attempt to try to discern or understand um, the value of these beautiful things for all people Mm -hmm. held in common. Yeah. Um, And also this carte blanche acceptance of, uh, donating money to charity. So they're going to handle my, the love of neighbor mm-hmm. versus doing it yourself, mm-hmm. uh, reaching out to the people that are within your orbit that you're able to help. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like there's a mis certainly mischaracterization of religion. So if you take the Christian religion, what does that mean? Well, it means particular it means here, we've got a church that gathers mm-hmm. and what do we do? Well, we certainly welcome all people to come to that church so they can receive God's gifts, give him praise, hear the hymnody, take communion, all of these kind of things. And then it's also a community that's open to where if you want to be part of our community, you can, and there's a lot of good things. You can be part of the yeah. different events we have. You can be part of the social structure. You can grow in God's word. People are there to help you. We've got a whole care ministry and it's mostly yeah. oriented for people who are within the church. In other words, people who have outwardly said, yeah, like I want to confess the creed and I want to grow in my understanding of Christianity. I want Christian help with my struggles and the roadblocks that help me get to that healthy Christian living. So the religion itself is the community that confesses the Christian faith and then Mm -hmm. reverse engineers from that confession to all of these different aspects that it does. And this kind of tearing down of religion is like, well, I don't need that doctrine or I don't need that creedal statement. You know, as long as I got my God, which I'm not willing to define or my Jesus, who I'm also not willing to define, um, then I'm okay. And I think really, you know, there's the undergirth of, and I can kind of go do what I want. Right. I don't have anybody else to tell me what I'm really supposed to be doing. I can just kind of interpret the scriptures as I want. Well, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) But I think we will find if pressed, they don't even engage in the interpretation of scripture. You're probably right. It's like, you know, I've had this before where it's, you know, tell me if if this is, if this comes off as, you know, the traditions of men mm-hmm. or contrary to that old time religion. Show me, let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at this. Mm-hmm. Let's look at John chapter three. And what do you think was going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. Tell me what you think is going on here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that that's happening. I, yeah, I don't think it's happening. Yeah. So, uh, and there's, there's a number of issues at hand. It's, I think uh, overall the ability to engage with text um, is kind of lackluster um, um, uh, and 
not to mention the willingness to devote the time to the study of the scriptures is, mm-hmm. is, is kind of lackluster sometimes. Yeah. And so, I, I want to circle back to that, just kind of the early church, Clement can, can be an example or not, of how they read, particularly the Old Testament scriptures or the mm-hmm. intersection between old and new. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to run to the restroom. Okay. So I've just been shotgunning water. Yeah. Morning, so <laughs> right, I'll yeah, be yeah. right back. Yeah. We were going to go into the Old Testament, but on our little break here, we've, yeah. <laughs> we, we got to go through a little bit more of this. Yeah. So um, let me just read. We've got the kind of the transcript up here. He goes on, uh, because the problem with religion is that it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Let's dress up the outside, make things look nice and neat. It's funny what, it's funny that's what they do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. So we're just talking here, like what's, what's interesting about this as well, a couple of different questions. First off, who's he speaking to? Right, right. What's what's this religion that he's talking about? He's he's assuming. Well, he is speaking to the Christian Church, mm-hmm. and what's going on here? I just want to lean on C.S. Lewis here and kind of hear your thoughts here. But C.S. Lewis at the beginning of Mere Christianity completely understands where this guy's going to go, and he wants to completely make sure that this never happens. So yeah. he completely refutes where this guy's going, and he basically says Christian has an actual definition. So Christian's not you know to say, oh, he's a nice guy, so he's probably Christian. Right. No. No, language yeah. means he's a nice guy. Yeah. That's what that means. What does Christian mean? Christian means someone that confesses the creed. Yeah. So the Christian religion, whatever anyone else thinks it is, doesn't matter. What is it objectively? It's the gathering of the people who confess the creedal faith. That's how we've understood the Christian religion. Mm-hmm. So he says religion is just behavior modification. Okay, so where's he getting that idea? Because that's not that's not in our creed. You right. know, I believe yeah. in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and goes through that whole thing. That's not the main focus of that. The main focus of religion, the Christian religion, is a proper understanding of who God is in the way that he reveals himself to us. Yeah. And then you move from there and say, how does how do we respond to there? And eventually you do get to morality, which you should yeah. get to morality. If not, yeah. that's a that's a an abortion of what Christianity is supposed to be. Yeah. But he's railing against religion and classifying it as something that just deals with behavior modification. That is as straw, as much of a straw man as you can possibly get. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts there. You have some yeah. good thoughts when we were on our small break. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think you put it pretty well. I think the you started off saying, well, like, who's he talking to? Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I mentioned, I wouldn't know where to to look it up, but I, <laughs> you know, one of the ubiquitous Chesterton sort of references that we that I wouldn't be able to know where it is from, but uh, he says that hypotheticals are the device of lazy men because they haven't bothered to actually go and get an example. And so you kind of are like, well, let's hear a specific example. Now, maybe in the format that he's, you know, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt in the format that he's going to, which also says something about itself. Um, He's not going to include those specific examples, but I think you're right that he's attacking a straw man and he's attacking all the people that that abandoned the beaten man on the side of the road, and now he's this kind of good Samaritan, or at least advocating for the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. us to be these good Samaritans, um, but completely uh, bypassing what Christianity at its core is, as you said, just the belief in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And, and yeah. to your point, standing outside of the church, hmm. because – Anyone that stands within the church is absolutely going to have um, um, 
corrections or uh, recommendations, right? I mean, that, that's always going to be the case. Yeah. I think we as a local congregation, or I think we as a regional congregation or a national congregation, we need to do some of these things, right? We never yeah. claim that we've got it 100%. We would yeah. say our credal faith is 100%, yeah. our carrying out, not so much. So you work on the inside and you have these discussions within your congregation, da, da, da. But he has removed himself from the church and then he's, he's kind of spitting back at the church yeah. and saying, and miscategorizing them. Yeah. And I'm actually, I have no idea where he goes with this because I don't remember. It's been years since I've looked at this, but yeah. it'll be interesting to see where, if he's going to tear something down, I'm, I'm interested to see where, what he's going to bring up. Um, so that because there's a people, da, 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 and every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. Now, see, see, now that's an interesting point. Um, because you have the idea of the garments given to those in uh, baptism throughout mm -hmm. the garment motif in, in the scriptures yeah. um, is such a powerful one. And we do believe that Christ has clothed us with his righteousness. And, you know, the fact that we're not able to live, you know, the fact that we fail and have sins doesn't um, deny the effectiveness of that garment, which we've received from Christ. Mm -hmm. And just the way that he's kind of, it is interesting from this perspective, there's this demand for authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I think that the whole point of manners and a code of conduct and these sorts of things is because we have all admitted that the authentic meant that from the depths of the heart, the abundance of the heart, you know, sin abounds. So I think that the restraints that we try to put on ourselves and we're trying to grow in virtue, we're trying to grow in the grace that has been given to us. Um, yeah, I, I think that you're going to see people fail and it doesn't mean that they're hypocrites. Mm -hmm. They, they believe full well mm -hmm. in Christ. They believe full well in his righteousness and they believe also in, that they are sinners. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, what he's demanding here is by far a greater moral out moralism mm -hmm. by far way stricter than what he uh, again appears to be rejecting. Yeah. 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 I mentioned this is where he goes from here. Cause yeah, yeah I mean, basically if, if, if the way that you are either a Christian or not a Christian or a follower of Jesus, probably the language he's going to use yeah. is because you're authentic in, in every yeah. aspect of life. I mean, that's going back to a works righteousness yeah. where you have to be basically yeah. perfect. That is so oppressive. Yeah. You're, you're living your life always trying to be this authentic person and, and that authentic person better be pristine, better be an angel. Mm -hmm. That's the point. It's like, okay, well, I can be authentic as long as we're all acknowledging that I believe in Jesus Christ and his salvation, his forgiveness. And I also am a sinner and I, I fail, you know? Yeah. Um, Which is, that's where he goes there. So he, he went, just went through and he used a couple different examples of, you know, I was going to church, but I was addicted to pornography, getting faded on Saturday night, um, you know, sexual promiscuity. So he's doing all these mm -hmm. things while he claims to be a Christian, spent my whole yeah. life putting on this facade of neatness. But now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Okay. So, I mean, that's, okay, that's fine. If grace is water, then the church should be in ocean because yeah. it's not museum for good people it's a hospital for the broken like so agreeing with these things i'm not agreeing if he's using this as a structure to beat up on the church i would agree with all those statements yep i no longer have to hide my failures i don't have to hide my sin because my salvation doesn't depend on me it depends on him yep because when i was god's enemy and certainly not a fan god looked down on me and said i want that man which is so different from religious so here's where he's great like everything you just said was great but now he's going to pull this and 
say that's different from religious people, which is so different from religious people and why Jesus called them fools. He didn't call religious people fools. He called people, re- people who in their religion were missing the Messiah. He was yeah, calling them fools. Right. No, that's a great point. And, you know, whenever he's talking to, um, was it Nicodemus? And he says, what, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Mm-hmm. So he... He's actually calling him out for failing to understand the religion, failing to understand the sacred texts. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. And it's also good, I mean, just good to note here within, because he's kind of kicking against, I think, Pharisees. But out of all of the Jewish groups, the Pharisees are the the only ones that Jesus can even interact with. Mm-hmm. Because all the other ones are so far-fetched. The ones that have left their religious roots and they've basically said, well, let's be half pagan and half Jewish. Like, let's yeah. just get along. Yeah. Those types of people, Jesus can't even work with those types of people. They've got, there's not even a common language. Mm-hmm. He can work with the Pharisees and a lot, and a lot of the Pharisees actually convert to Christianity. We've mm-hmm. got Nicodemus, we've got John of uh, Arimathea, what's his name? Okay. And well, and Paul. So, Paul. You know. Yeah. yeah. And once again, Paul's conversion was not. Uh, was not a, he was a religious person and now he was oh, a Jesus right. follower. It was, he was a religious person waiting for the Messiah and he was confessing that Jesus was not the Messiah. And now his zeal and his his understanding for loyalty and fidelity to the one true God, which was there even when he was persecuting the Christians, it was it was wrongly aimed. Yeah. Now he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, which recalibrated everything. He didn't yeah. leave behind a religious understanding. He said, now the way that I'm a right rightly religious man is by yeah. worshiping God. And how do I worship God? Well, I've got to worship his Messiah. Yeah. You know, his son that's been sent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that there, and with that comes an added understanding of the scriptures. Yeah. You know, because you have the whole eye, the scales falling from the eyes, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah. And then, and he'll, he brings that up in second Corinthians chapter three about the veil being laid over. Mm-hmm. The scriptures, even at this day, they read it through a veil. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think uh, there is a sense in which coming to Christ and um, and his enlightenment, his salvation, does uh, it. So the religious understanding that Paul has is actually opened up now. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't dispute that the Lord used him. And prepared him the way that he did for the work that would would come. Yeah, you can't you can't say that he just started with zero. Like he yeah. he prepared Paul for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that uh, and he was a, he was a religious man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then he moves to. I think he says some good stuff there, right? I mean, the whole point it's not depending on myself. Um, depends on who Christ is. But then he moves on, which is so different from religious people. Why they call why Jesus called them fools? Not you know push back there. Don't you see? He's so much better than just following some rules. Once again, what Christian religion is just about following rules? Mm-hmm. Certainly not any mainstream one. Certainly not the LCMS. Certainly not the Greek Orthodox or yeah. the Orthodox or the Catholic or the Presbyterian Church yeah. in America. I mean, any of these kind of traditionally based mainline Christian denominations that haven't gone off the deep end. From our perspective, this is not at all. That does not characterize them correctly. Now, let me clarify. I love the church. I love the Bible and I believe in sin. But my question is, if Jesus were here today, would your church let him in? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Our church would. Remember, he was called a drunkard and a glutton by religious men. The son of God, not supported. Son of God, not supported self-righteousness. Not now, not then. Now, back to the topic, one thing I think is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. One is the work of God and one is a man-made invention. Do you agree with yeah. that statement? Um, yeah, I mean, 
the way that he's kind of, I mean, if we're putting a best construction on it, we could maybe agree with it. Now, okay, so in our tradition, mm-hmm. um, you have the uh, dogmatics of Peeper, and he'll he'll talk about just being there two religions in the world, yep. the, re- the religion of works and the religion of grace. So that's, you know, one could say that's a simplification. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an accurate one that in Christ, there is the true religion. And when he makes this distinction here, he'll talk about how one is the cure and one is the infection. That is one being Christ is the cure and one being religion is the infection. And, uh, or religion says, do Jesus has done. I mean, people would say, well, the religion of works, which is all other religions other Mm -hmm. than that of the, the Christian religion says do. Yeah. What Jesus has done. Um, so I can, I, I see what he's doing here. And I think that if it's just a miss kind of, yes, the only, it's, it's just kind of a misstated mm-hmm. miscategorization or something. I think it's a good way to put it just because, uh, I mean, like you said, to put the best construction yeah. on if what he's railing against is religion of works, as you said, go for it. His yeah. big problem seems to be he's not just, railing against bad religion but he's actually putting all religion into a category including the way that christianity has been a religion for as long as it's been well and the yeah i think you're right the his biggest beef isn't so much with the well we'll we'll have to ask what is the religion that he's coming up with or what is the alternative Mm -hmm. and uh i think that the problem with the alternative is that it excludes so much of what is actually true and proper to mm-hmm. the true religion of grace. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. That's a good point. So, I mean, yeah. To, so to finish up, um, you know, for someone who's listening, the big takeaway is if you take, if you take this kind of teaching and you take it to its final conclusion and you really kind of adopt this mindset, then what you do is you go into your church, like let's say our church and you say, uh, well, what's religion? Well, the hymns are religious because those are kind of constructs of man. You know, Jesus didn't write hymns or we say, you know, like the same thing with like the liturgy or the beautiful architecture of the church. Those are those are power constructs of man or, mm-hmm. you know, something of that sort. Yeah. So what really is great? Well, it's, it's you know, me and my friends studying the Bible at home. Like that's where it right. really is. I don't need any of this. I don't need a pastor. I don't need any of these kind of constructs. Yeah. I don't need a hymnal, da, da, da. As long as I've got Bible and Jesus and my friends, like that's yeah. where the real church is. And like, we're going out and we're serving our neighbor, da, 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 da. Yeah. And while those things are good to do, they are supposed to flow out of the life of the church. And the life yeah. of the church has been molded by very good theologians throughout the centuries, ones that it's not like this YouTube video. Yeah. These are real good theologians who have yeah. created these hymns, who have created these liturgies, who have created these kind of spiritual practices and disciplines that have been within the church. And people that come into the religion of Christianity are given these great tools to help them, you mm-hmm. know, and to help orient them around word and sacrament, you know, certainly yes. these kind of things that absolutely belong in the church. Yes. Yeah. And then if you're affected by those things and participating in those things, and you want to get together with friends and read the Bible or go out and do these kind of acts of service good for you, but don't burn down the church in yeah. order to just put these other things. Cause if you do, you're actually cutting down the tree that you're sitting on or yeah. the limb branch that you're sitting on. Um, you know, t- two things here is I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I would just dispute whether somebody is actually going off with their friends on a mountaintop and studying the Bible mm-hmm. too often. This is just opinions built on Hollywood depictions of Christianity. 
you know, we we briefly we were talking the other day about symbolism in Hollywood and stuff like that. And they engage the the propaganda that comes out of Hollywood. I very much want to talk about this yeah. in depth. Um, they just the way that they will portray religious people and their way that they'll should we, should we move right church? into this? Yeah, sure. Move yeah. right into this. Okay, we're we're done with this uh, with this. Yeah. best construct. You know, I'm sure his intentions were good. I kind of beat up on him a little bit. I'm sure he's got tough skin. Yeah, but yeah, don't do not take that idea and run with it. It's not it's not a healthy idea. Yeah. Anyway. And I, f- I feel like he definitely misrepresented the true religion of yeah. Christ. Yeah. 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 Um, but, and then there's also the, cause we, and we kept bringing up like, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, he's talking about these characterizations that you, and they're not just, you know, coming out of the vacuum of his presentation on the Christian religion. It's, it's, he's been bombarded with this and we're all being bombarded with this all the time, mm-hmm. the way that Hollywood will depict Christians as being, or or religious people too, um, but they are a little bit harder on Christians, it does seem, uh, as being unnecessarily strict, legalistic, not uh, willing to understand people and where they're at, un- you know, lacking compassion, all of these things. And I think that Christians who are exposed to this all the time, they're drinking the, this in all the time, you know, then they, they kind of, and they, they want to be, they're tempted to be pleasers of men mm-hmm. and they want to distance themselves from that characterization rather than correct the characterization. They'd rather distance themselves from it. And, uh, I think that's something we have to be wary of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think Timothy Keller puts it and says, um, I know you've got mixed feelings about Timothy Keller, but he says most people that, most people that, uh, most people that disagree with Christianity don't disagree with Christianity. They disagree with kind of a facade of Christianity. They've been presented with something that's not entirely Christian, but it's called, yeah. you know, it carries the name of Christianity. And they're like, yeah. I don't like that. But they haven't actually encountered true creedal Christianity yeah. because usually it's kind of this false narrative that's put out on media, in movies, on TV shows, and even by Christians. Mm-hmm. Very often. And the more that Christians allow the Christian religion to, to be determined by anything other than the scriptures, the more that they will that fall prey to those criticisms. Mm-hmm. But when you say the scriptures are the rule and norm and the script, you, you have to find the scriptures as the source of our teaching and of our life and everything. I mean, they, they, this is the, the authority it, and and if somebody wants to make these claims about the Christian religion, well, let's go look at the scriptures and see what that actually says. And if it if the scriptures do condemn us for this or that belief or practice, then you are correct that this is not true Christianity. But we have to say that true Christianity does is coming from these scriptures, mm-hmm. um, and we can't deal with just these mischaracterizations. Or even maybe you you actually do see people. Um, you can cite examples and that sort of thing. You can see unlovingness because, you know, you'll hear a waitress post, you know, you see a waitress posting on Twitter, like a, a picture of a receipt on Sunday after all, you know, the church crowd comes through and it says, you know, I'll pray for you. That's my tip or something like that. Yeah. You know, like then we wouldn't, that's not the Christian religion. Yeah. So you can't criticize that and then say you've just now, taken down thousands of years of the Christian tradition and refuted their scriptures and all this. Yeah. 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 
Christianity is definitely a thinking religion. If you want to refute Christianity, you can't just take a yeah. Christian who does something dumb and say, well, there you go. There's your, you know, there's your fruits of Christianity. Yeah. You have to actually look at, okay, well, what, what, what about those creedal faiths? What about that confession that the church puts forward, which, as you said, come from the scriptures? Yeah. What, what do you disagree with? Yeah. And, and go for it. Yeah. You know, and we can have that discussion. But yeah. if you're mad because someone was in a bad mood in Home Depot and like mouthed off to somebody because like their kids were yelling at them all morning and then yeah. you found out they were a Christian and you're like, well, there you go. Like the yeah. church, it's just you, be an intellectual. Yeah. You know, in, engage these things. And if you don't want to engage these things, that's on you. Mm-hmm. But, but these things are serious matters. And if you want to take them seriously, you know, yeah. that's how you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about this. We've talked about this a couple of times over the weekend. Not over the weekend. Well, yeah, it is. I guess it's Monday. Um, we talked about it last night and we've talked about it before, but just the power of symbolism. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Ooh. I, uh, I think to put it simply, it's going to cheapen it, but fake it till you make it. Mm. You know, that uh, symbols, um, I think a lot of times we think of symbols and illustrations as merely describing something um, and not something that shapes us. Like we think of them as having no power over us Mm -hmm. and so that we don't have to be threatened by them. So so, it's just, it's just, it's just one means of communicating. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. So can you explain what sim, like it's not symbolism, is it? Well, can you explain what symbols are? Yeah. People probably understand illustrations, but symbols, people might be, yeah. they might, might not know that term. Well, I think, uh, you know, we could say this, the American flag is like a symbol for our country, for mm-hmm. the, the United States of America. A symbol is uh, something that represents something, another mm-hmm. thing. Um, and on, um, on one level. But if you look at like the etymology of the word, it, from the Greek sum and bale of being thrown together. And so symbol actually isn't detached from the thing that it symbolizes. It somehow is able to contain the thing which it symbolizes and communicate it. Um, and I think of like, uh, if somebody, I, I actually have this picture in my mind that we're going back to like 18... 40s riverboat town on the Mississippi River in Mississippi. And there's a man, he's come down from Illinois and he sees in this little pub or tavern another gentleman over there with his, his slave. And they, he, um, he looks over there at them and, and the slave, the, the man who owns this slave catches his eye. He sees him looking over at him. And they exchange some, some words, you know, some, uh, and they have a little bit of an argument, you know, and then the, because of the tension between the states over the issue of slavery and so forth, mm-hmm. and then they kind of go their ways. But that was a symbol of the larger conflict that's happening in this, that was happening in that country mm-hmm. at that time and leading up to the civil war. That so it points to something bigger than itself. Yeah. But and it contains it, it within yeah. itself. I mean, there was an actual, yeah. there was, a, there was the feelings of animosity. There were the yeah. words that were sharp. Yeah. All of those things are representative of this, these national movements. Yeah. Okay. And you're saying regular symbols. Yeah. They're going to have that same kind of yeah. connection, connotation and yeah. uh, effect. And, and maybe, maybe I would think more 
move want to move away from symbols into the idea of symbolic acts. Mm-hmm. So when the president goes down to the border to look at the border, or doesn't, as the case may be, mm-hmm. that's symbolic. Uh, when he goes down to the border, he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not like he's going down there and like you know building something or mm-hmm. you know standing at the border and like screening. Uh, so whether he's there or not doesn't necessarily affect things, but the fact that he goes or doesn't go somehow affects things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it has an effect. It's symbolic. And that symbol brings with it the weight and the power of the presidency of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so there are these symbolic acts that we are surrounded by and the opportunity to engage in these symbolic acts uh, all the time. And so, for example, the way that a man treats his wife or his children, he can say that he loves them, but if he doesn't engage in these these activities, then does does he really? Mm-hmm. And uh, we we might say, well, I really do, but if I'm, but again, if you're not able to engage in those activities to show love, and or maybe. And this is a great example is just how much you see people tear each other down with their words mm-hmm. and they'll say, oh, but we do, we love each other. Or, you know, that's just the way we are. But what you a- fail to understand that those have extreme symbolic power that influence you and guide you. They fake it till they make it. So what are, what are some ways you, you spoke of some different ways that like movies and media do these yeah. kind of things, right? So they're they're yeah. they're very much teaching and impacting individuals in ways that they might not see, but the impact is still there. I yeah. think was kind of your argument, and you gave some good examples of, yeah. of different movies. Um, there's the uh, a lot of that. Thanks, thanks, Bennett. Uh, a, a lot of that is. Uh, um, I, I've picked up from like Jonathan Pajot and his. Oh, I can't remember the name of his video. Is his channel now? The Symbolic World, I think it is. What it's okay. called? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he he analyzes the propaganda feminist propaganda coming out of Hollywood, mm-hmm. and some of the great examples that he uses is Wonder Woman, and which was interestingly enough, a lot of people, even conservative Christians, were like lauding this as a a nice break away from some of the, the typical Hollywood portrayals of women and this that and the other. Um, and then he also draws on like uh, uh, Fury Road. You know, Mad Max, Mad, Mad Max, mm-hmm. Fury Road, or something like that. And, but in Wonder Woman, the scene that he thinks just really captures what he's trying to address is where you have this there's a firefight in the village. It's in the context of World War One. So you have the Huns, the Germans, who they're the quintessential bad guy, you know. And then you have the Allies, which are the British, and they're fighting in this village and they get pinned down by this German sniper. The location of the sniper matters. He's in the bell tower of a church. And this represents the kind of institutional oppression of organized religion. Um, and then the fact, and then this British sniper is not able to get him, which is symbolic of how, of male incompetence mm-hmm. and inability to address the issues of systemic oppression and especially patriarchal and organized the oppression of organized religion that he's um he's freezing up in the moment and so wonder woman comes in to save the day and jonathan pajot makes a point that she's done all kinds of things throughout the movie she doesn't need anyone to help her 
And yet in that scene, it's necessary to have uh, the other men there prop her up. So they get like the door to the church or something like that. And they're holding it as like this point for her to vault off of. And they vault her up and she's, you know, jumps off of this door and smashes the bell tower and destroys, you know, this symbol of organized religion and oppression. And then at that, everybody comes to the realization that war is bad. And she's, you know, standing there in kind of like cruciform form. You know? She's got her arms out almost yeah. like she's on a yeah. Yeah, cross. Like being portrayed as a savior, you know, yeah. and the, the feminine power will save us from uh -huh. war. Versus like and, the Christian crucifix, which has kept, yeah. is, which has been a means by which war and stuff has been yeah. perpetrated. By the yeah. way, uh, religious war has only been 7% of the recorded wars. I meant to say that statistic earlier, but, yeah. but anyway, they're going to paint this picture like it's 70%. Oh, yeah. That's what yeah. Christianity has caused. That's what da da da. But now you've got this woman breaking the patriarchy. Yeah. And she's cruciform yeah. up there and she's destroyed this church bell tower. And yeah. Interesting. And I, so I, uh, showed that video to my parishioners mm -hmm. and we talked about it. And, um, I think it was, it was, it was pretty interesting. I think it was really eye opening. Mm -hmm. Um, and once you, once you start looking into that, you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Just you see it the way that they will portray the interactions between men and women in TV ads in even children's entertainment that they're, that's symbolic power and it trains people how to treat each other and trains how to regard mother and father and how to regard the uh, family mm -hmm. and the structures of family and authority and all of this, that that has quite significant effect on people. And, and somebody might say, well, this is inconsequential. We all know that that's fantasy. That's Wonder Woman. We know that that's not real, but those symbols are real and they are manipulating people. They're controlling people. So, which has more of an effect on someone the way that that was done or if you you know put biden in front of a teleprompter or pick whoever it is and had them kind of give a manifesto for feminism which yeah. one do you think has a bigger impact on someone in other words that very overt where everyone would look and say i don't agree yeah. with that and then with the symbolism one that you're talking about or this kind of symbolic power yeah people kind of across the board look watch that in the movie and they walk away and they go eh, nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. which do you think actually has more of an effect on people yeah i think that they're going to have certainly different effects mm -hmm. so one is going to galvanize those more readily available to that to feminism it's going to make the fire the troops up if you're delivering a manifesto and this sort of thing mm -hmm. the other one is really subversive and is going to um it will form more, it provides more of a bedrock for those that are kind of bought into that. It all, but it will also begin to subvert those that maybe aren't bought into that. And, but then they will begin to understand more where the other side is coming from. And they're mm -hmm. going to appreciate those. And when they're called out for it, then, you know, uh, and you, you see this and this is this political posturing all the time where they'll, make a statement about, oh, well, so-and-so, uh, you know, like they, the way that they treated the immigrants by taking them to Martha's Vineyard and this sort of thing. And mm -hmm. um, they're just mistreating them so much. And, but then they're, they're kind of engaging in this idea of wanting to care for them. And, and so they're putting, propping themselves up as wanting to defend these people and take care of them and, and that the other side is exploiting them. Mm -hmm. And, 
um, I can't remember fully where I'm going with that, but there, it's not like this white, this is just one isolated event. I shouldn't say isolated, but like this one little event that they're exploiting. And then the other side is like, wow, that is pretty exploitative. And mm-hmm. it makes them completely forget and disregard the grand exploitation that is happening at the border. Yeah. yeah. Children and stuff like that. I, I saw something the other day and you'd have to check me on it, but the amount of children that are caged up, like, you know, separated from parents, caged up or whatever, they're on the border is extremely high, like mm-hmm. five times higher than it was a few years ago. I think the numbers was somewhere in the range of like 5,000 previously, or maybe it was 2,000 to like double digits now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's manipulation of the of the imagery going on to try to yeah. What's what's the Mad Max? One? Yeah, and the other one that uh, Peugeot makes use of that I thought was really good was the you know Mad Max Fury Road, and in that one, uh, Immortan Joe, he's the big bad guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's living in this drought. They don't have access to water, which is the symbol of life, and human you know human beings being made up of water and even it's a biblical symbol for life too mm-hmm. and it's interesting in psalm 1 that you describe the righteous as like one who is planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in his season so these are like universal symbols that they're playing with and immortan joe has control of the water supply and he's exploiting mothers to feed people like breast milk mm-hmm. like the mother uh, of these mothers um, and because he's controlling this means of production, the people are beholden to him. What happens over the course of the film, though, is that Immortan Joe, who is actually out trying to rescue his wives that have been stolen or that escaped. Okay. And now he's trying to rescue them. And so, again, this depiction of the oppressive patriarchy mm-hmm. that's exploiting the mothers that is out to get his wives and, you know, who don't want to be around him. Um now he's out to go rescue them. He ends up dying. They overthrow Immortan Joe and Furiosa, one of his generals who has turned against him and has tried to take his wives away from him and like to rescue them Hardy? from him. Furiosa is the woman. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And well, that's the thing. Mad Max is a story about Mad Max. Uh-huh. And yet this one, he is not the hero. He's just kind of the supporting character. Hmm. Furiosa is the hero. And you know, she's all beaten up and beleaguered once they get to the end and he's helping her onto the platform that ascends to Immortan Joe's palace, palace, a place of power. And then she turns and notices and the crowds are, you know, hailing her and as uh, their liberator and they open up the water um, and she notices that Mad Max has actually gotten off the platform and he's like standing there in the crowd and he salutes up to her, kind of nods on, you know, nods to her. And it's just the symbol of how man is to the proper place of man is to elevate the feminist power, feminine power. Hmm. And, uh, you know, again, Jonathan Peugeot, I, uh, really, I think does an excellent job on this. And I would encourage people to check that out. Um, but it, it does highlight, and he says, these are just some examples. You see it through all kinds of popular entertainment. And, you know, if you look at how, how popular, how, um, much people have drunk of the Marvel universe, which is full of that kind of, um, symbolic feminism and so forth. Um, yeah, just so much coming out of Hollywood. You realize that people are being exposed to this on very appealing 
in very appealing ways. You and know, it primes you for a philosophical switch, right? Like all yeah. of these, it plays with your emotions yeah. so that later on, it's so much easier to, to uh, change your, your definition of truth on something. Yeah. You know, I think of modern families, maybe a good example. I actually like that show. It's, it's, it's quite entertaining show, but I, I also too. kind of know what they're, what they're doing a little bit, but they've got, um, they've got the, the gay couple that, mm. you know, they're, they're a gay couple. They've adopted, yeah. adopted at least one kid, I think later on, maybe the uh, second mm-hmm. and their personalities are really great. Like mm-hmm. they do with that. I mean, and of course this is fiction. These are make-believe yeah. people, right? but they play it in such a way where you do, you just kind of fall in love with, with mm-hmm. their characters, mm-hmm. with their plight, with all of this stuff. Yep. And you have to remind yourself like, this is fiction. These aren't real people. This mm-hmm. is a story that people have yeah. designed for a specific purpose. And they're very mm-hmm. overt and they're trying to normalize this as this is one way to play family. Yeah. And right. And this portrayal in the show, as attractive as it is, has nothing to do with the regular situation of what homosexuality yeah. does, especially with the adoption of children. Yeah. Um, and you, but you've become, it just takes a couple episodes and I can already see, even in my mind, yeah. I mean, like, well, it's not so bad. I'm like, whoa, what the, yeah. where am I getting this yeah. from? And it's so, it is a really powerful yeah. tool. Yeah. You know, someone like myself who's, I've spent enough time discussing, yeah. reading books, understanding, you know, yeah. the multiple facets of this situation of moving towards a um, pro-homosexual society, particularly in the adoption of children and putting mm-hmm. children in that situation where they don't have a mother yeah. and they've yeah. got two foreign fathers that raise them and all of that, I would stand against that foolheartedly as, as much as I can possibly stand against something. Mm-hmm. And yet- it takes like four or five episodes for me to kind of even start to falter hmm. on that. And of mm-hmm. course, I've got the the academic wherewithal to pull myself yeah, back. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just thinking there's no greater tool yeah. than this. Yeah. Um, you know, I even think maybe another example would be Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another example of a show I absolutely love. Yep. The and Office with Oscar. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, in Parks and Rec, there's they play out the one where like uh, – they, they marry two gay penguins or something like that. So it's, oh, it's right. a kind of a, you know, yeah. it's a kind of a funny start off, but that leads into this whole debate. And what they do is they bring in this Christian woman and her, and her obviously yep. gay husband. Yeah. And they, they're basically representing the Christian yeah. standpoint and they do it in just the most absolutely miserable, kick it around type of way. Like yeah. they're just, they're absolute buffoons. Yeah. And what they're doing in that scene and throughout that entire episode is they're basically saying, well, here's the yeah. Christian perspective and they're strawmanning yeah. it, yeah, yeah. you know, in this comedic way. And then they're putting the very reasonable response to that from the characters that you love. Mm-hmm. And they're doing more there than any book could possibly yeah. do for it. And it's once again, it's all a lie. It's yeah. com- it's put in – this is put together in a – in a studio, yeah, and uh, people are writing these scripts. These aren't real dialogues. Yeah. This isn't a real representation of the Christian viewpoint. Yeah. They demand of us nuance mm-hmm. all the time, and then they're just have complete license to mischaracterize mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, what what do you think about that? Should what should we do? Should we understanding the power, the symbolic power at play here? What should we do? Yeah, what have we done? That's a good question. So in other words, what do we do as like an institution? What do we do as family? I mean, I would say as Christians, yeah. it's easier maybe to speak to the father or the mother mm-hmm. and to say, be very wary of what you're exposing your children to. That's probably the main sure. thing I can speak to. Um, to say, yeah, understand that these things are out there and therefore you really have to be on what are your children watching. And if you decide as a family, I mean, I love Parks and Rec. I think it's a great mm-hmm. show. If you decide to watch those, you know, a show like that or any show that's out there, just understand that you have to be very purposeful mm-hmm. 
and overt on having the kind of philosophical conversations, the kind of real conversations with your children Mm -hmm. so that when these things come up, that's not the only narrative they're getting. And in fact, when that comes up, debrief with your children, you know, and say, do you see what they're doing there? And just have the conversation like what we're doing. That's what parents need to do. Yeah. As far as the church, that's a little bit more difficult. I don't, you know, I certainly can't say the church would say you can't watch Marvel movies or anything ridiculous like that. I wouldn't advocate for that. (laughs) I don't know if I would say it's too ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) I think that you can get a lot, well, I should say that, but you can get a lot done with prejudice. Mm -hmm. I get a lot. Is prejudice, that's the thing is like, is prejudice always a vice? Mm -hmm. And I, uh, by rings prejudice. Yeah. Right. Right. Pride and prejudice, pride for my wife and prejudice against anyone that would, yeah. would dare try to yeah. step in, in between me and my wife. Um, it is, it's interesting because we also talked a little bit about like dragons. Dragons are bad guys. Mm-hmm. They're, they, and what they represent is evil and deceptive and greedy and the demise of man. And how are they portrayed now? There's nuance. They always ask us to have nuance while they, engage in these kind of um just mischaracterizations and i wonder but but this is a thing dragons i I shouldn't say the invention they are the invention of christians we are the ones that set up dragons as the symbol of evil there's no nuance to them they are to be destroyed Mm -hmm. and do christians have a concept of that anymore Mm. we think that we are to address everything with nuance and that there's no room for prejudice. There's no room for saying absolutely not Mm -hmm. because everything that this represents is bad. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, well, actually, is it actually though? No, it's, I regard the right kind of fortifications of the mind to be essential and called for. And the way that like wisdom teaches us in the Proverbs to flee from that woman, Mm -hmm. to flee from that, that vice. So I think that Christians are to engage in a kind of similar warfare. Yeah, I think that's, I, yeah. I am attracted to that in a couple of different ways, but certainly one would be, um, we, I've had a couple of experiences where I have to, Exodus 90, I've talked to you about that. I've talked with, you know, Josh Arn about yeah. that. We talked more in depth in one of these episodes, but. Um, and we have to clarify that is a health program, not the 90th chapter of Exodus. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it takes you, you remove a lot of things. And it was very interesting because you remove TV and you yeah. remove elements of music. Like you can only listen to godly music that's pleasing to God or something along yeah. those lines. And it was amazing when I would try to go back to those old shows and whatnot mm-hmm. or and yeah. music, I realized how desensitized I was to those things. Right. Um, and the question it kind of raised then with that experience was, okay, how much have I been taught and programmed to think that entertainment is one of my chief chief goods in life yeah rather than seeking after that which is good right and how much tv or movies do we watch that's entertainment but it's not actually good for my soul or good for my mind and if that's something that pits against each other you know something that's not good for my soul um but it's entertaining Mm -hmm. well which one should i ultimately go with yeah and i do think you can get to and this is where if you you should as a christian be engaged in conversations like what we're having now, sure. thinking through Christian thought, um, you know, dissecting the Bible, dissecting, you know, good Christian literature and teachings and such. Yeah. Cause that can help prepare you to go out and 
watch a movie that's not thoroughly Christian. Mm-hmm. And that and you can actually get a lot of good out of that. You know, mm-hmm. we were just talking last night. Actually, I'm going to I want to ask you about this. But we talked about Oppenheimer, which was the movie that I oh, chose yeah. oh, to sure. watch. And you had yeah, another yeah. movie, which we're going to talk about I took, here in a minute. I took the low road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you can do that as a Christian, yeah. you know, and and then you should be able to do kind of what we've done with Modern Family and whatnot and to say, I can identify what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just be, you know, hidden from their battle plan. Know thy enemy. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's okay to do, but if that's all you do and you're not rooting yourself in the truth, you will be, you will, they will purchase and win you. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I would also add though, that everybody's going to have some of their own limits, uh, or standards and we, but we still have to have something. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have brought up before the, the idea of the, it's not, it's not my own, (laughs) Uh, armor of contempt, mm. the armor of contempt. And there's sometimes where I see something and I know that it's so subversive. I know that they, they want to subvert, uh, what Christ teaches us. They want to subvert, um, the authority of the family. They want to deceive my children. I, and maybe they don't have my children specifically in mind, but there is something that I hold in such, there are some things I hold in such contempt that I will never even give it the light of day. And that's an armor to protect you and, and protect your family. Armor of contempt. And somebody might, well, it's not very open-minded. You know, you should be willing to engage them. Like, there's some things I will not engage at all. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that just how much people are allowed to have that, but Christians are never, mm-hmm. you know. And again, uh, it's, you know, maybe this is petty, but like Sikhs can have their ceremonial knives and their turbans and um, Muslims have Ramadan and all this sort of thing. But the second that there's some kind of requirement of the Christian, not necessarily of, of self pertaining to salvation, but we as Christians, as a group in this world, that we live in this world, we're not of this world, but we do live in it. And therefore we bear the marks of a people that live in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately. No, you can't have that. You can't, um, we, the, we, we can't, uh, you can't say that you have to go to church on Sunday. You mm-hmm. could go to church on Saturday. You could go to church on Wednesday or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But just to say, there are some things that we will not abide whatsoever. And you, we have to gird ourselves with the armor of contempt, knowing that they're saying, but does you, do you actually have to engage that in order to be a good Christian? And I'd say the fact that you're asking me that question indicates that you do not have my good in mind. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to, in the conversation there. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And and to say that I will not abide these things. And if that means losing what you are trying to um, uh, present to me as an opportunity, mm-hmm. this is not an opportunity for me to share something with. I, I get exactly where this is going. This is an opportunity to subvert mm-hmm. and to not abide it. So yeah. that when you detect that, to not abide it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something with that with, I mean, Sunday morning sports, which are very yeah. prevalent here, everywhere, Yeah, you know, most places. And it's one of those, you know, did God really say you got to go to church on Sunday? Yeah. You can be a Christian, just go yeah. play football on Sunday morning. Yeah. And it's one of those, once again, like, well, that's okay, right? And it's like, just the fact that you're even asking that question, once mm-hmm. again, is the the beginning of a problem. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. I'm, I just think to myself, do, do they respect you? That they're asking you to forsake your religious obligations. And will they respect you more if you do say, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, go yeah. do that. I, I you're want you you're to a mercenary. This. Yeah. You're not. You're you're somebody who's out for hire. 
mm-hmm. and ultimately you're their slave. Mm. Do you, they respect you? I don't think they do. Yeah. And you should, you should be upset by that. Yeah. You should be offended at that. And you're not going to, you, you were talking about this on break and I want you to kind of go on this, but you're not going to win people over by continually yeah. bending the knee and continually showing yeah. people that what you do isn't all that serious. And it could be, it could be discarded yeah. at the earliest inconvenience. Yeah. Um, can, can you kind of speak to that? Cause you, you had some good thoughts on break. Well, um, yeah, I think, you, uh, you mentioned the, the Muslim, yeah, yeah, uh, I, UFC fighter. Yeah. People are, we, we will often talk about trying to compromise and identify with people and reach them on their level, which as far as we are allowed to, we should be willing to, you know, as Paul says, to become all things to all men in order that some might believe. Um, but I think one thing, one way, one uh, way of opening up the conversation is to be a people that have standards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mentioned Khabib Nurmagomedov that he's this UFC fighter, kind of popular. But one thing that's popular about him that people have started to latch onto, he is a Muslim man. He's very principled. And, you know, he he got flamed for not allowing ring girls at one of the competitions. He didn't want anything to do with it um, because of, you know, it's exploitative, it's temptation, whatever uh, his rationale was. But I, you know, I can think of plenty of reasons that he might've been drawing on. Yeah. Um, And there are people out there that they're saying, you Christians need to be accommodating and reach people where they're at and go to the, you know, have church and bar and have, you know, like all these things, you have to be accommodating. But then you're alienating all the people out there that want standards. They live in completely disordered worlds. And we have the opportunity to present to them order and morality and obviously gospel, the saving law, uh, the, the, the saving um, way of Christ, the gospel of Christ, which includes obviously his law and his gospel. But, um, and I, so there's... Uh, Rusty Reno has this book where he's addressing uh, the state of the church in the United States. And he, he, he addresses, addresses, I can't think of the title right now, but he addresses how mainline denominations support divorce. Mm-hmm. And so often they support it because they have uh, these good marriages and stuff. And the people that are most affected by divorce and they're wealthy and all these things, the people that are most affected by divorce are the poor. Mm-hmm. The people that are most affected by all of this licentiousness, just surrendering of basic standards of more basic morality. We're not talking about Christian religion. We're talking about basic morality. The people that suffer the most are the, are poor people, are underclass people. When you have enough money to afford these great settlements and you have enough money to have, people taking care of your kids. And this is not speaking to the, to the emotional damage that's going on. I mm-hmm. just mean, um, you know, in this world and in this life, it's disproportionately affecting the poor mm-hmm. and, uh, no fault divorce has disproportionately affected, um, the African American community, um, all kinds of people. It affects everybody negatively. Mm-hmm. Divorce does. Yeah. But it, it is interesting to see how, People think that they're actually being gracious and even heard it in the video where he kind of talks about, he uh, disparages that morality, the morality surrounding divorce and marriage. 
he disparages that as being uptight and judgmental and these sorts of things. Well, there's some people out there that might actually want someone to say fathers need to fulfill their obligations mm -hmm. and mothers need to respect their fathers. You know, the amount of people that are, I, I think that they're unspoken in a lot of times, but I think that a lot of people resent the undermining of their fathers by the culture. Mm -hmm. And there's just as much, it's a two-way street. People don't like when fathers are abusive of their wives and of the mo mother. They also don't like when mother undermines father. Mm -hmm. And I think that Christians have an opportunity to say, the Lord, like marriage is sacred and it is it is supposed to be ordered and God stands for order and all the people who are living in disorder and they just want something, some kind of order in their lives, uh, they are being neglected when we neglect our, our opportunity to share that order with the world. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what I was speaking to. And people are latching on to that with and they um, do like desire that. They desire yeah. that more than people willing to compromise. Yeah. I mean, we, I remember I was talking yes. two years ago or so, and you were talking about the, the compromising nature of not the LCMS, but some of these churches where they yeah. kind of try to appeal to people who have no interest in Christianity. Yeah. And so they kind of follow their, their standard of morals, all of these things, you know, they become mm -hmm. uh, deserters of the Christian faith while they do this. Yeah. And the other groups, they, they don't give, they don't give two cares yeah. about that. They yeah. say, Thank you. We're glad you did that, but we're we're yeah. not we're still not interested. They yeah. don't win anybody over on the yeah. process, and the numbers show that. And that's where what are the two fastest growing, and it's not even close religions in America. It's uh, it's Islam and it's Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to talk about two religions very that are very structured and have yeah. high demands of their people, yeah, um, just from an evangelical, very practical, like if you're if you're trying to grow your church, and mm -hmm. I don't want to disconnect that from sure. you should be, you know, standing for. The, the truth of the faith, yeah. but you should be going in the exact opposite direction that they're going. They're abandoning the faith and they're doing it in the one strategical move that's actually, that's actually proven not to help. Mm -hmm. So once again, back to your point, you know, you've got people that are looking for some answers, some structure, some reasons not to go down a licentious lifestyle or a broken lifestyle or all of these things that lead to, mm -hmm. um, to damage. And the Christian church has just that that age old truth and that age old confession that actually gives the yes this is actually how mm -hmm. we believe that things are and we're you know there yeah. are rules and there's structure and there's order and all of this and they're looking for that and mm -hmm. it's basically the ball's been handed to us around the two yard line and we just keep we just keep throwing it away yeah it's like just just stick with the faith just give that to people and that's what yeah. people actually want they don't want to see how much you can bend yeah. over backwards or how yeah. much you can and you know, you know they can take it or leave it yeah. Uh, and, obviously, and even if they don't take it now, that doesn't mean they're not yeah, going to take it in 10 years. Yeah. I, uh, there's a, I knew a man once talking about how there was a woman, her husband was cheating on her. And so they ended up getting a divorce and the kid had to watch all of this. And um, it was a really messy situation. And the church came alongside that woman and they supported her uh, and supported her when she ended up getting remarried. And this is so, you know, we're getting into this, mm -hmm. this really sticky situation. And um, and this man said that, and then she ended up later, 13 years down the road, wanting a divorce. Mm -hmm. She wanted the divorce now. And just because she kind of didn't feel it anymore. And the church excommunicated her for that. Mm -hmm. And he said that that woman was my mother. So the church, he he, so he was describing how, 
the Christians were actually being gracious. They're trying to help this family mm-hmm. and help support this boy. And the fact that they stood for something, both stood for grace and extending grace, but also stood for this the, the biblical teaching on marriage meant something to him. Mm. He respected and it, that. And, you know, he's telling me this in the context of, of church. Mm-hmm. So it, it meant something. And it, you know, that in addition to many other things, but by his own admission, this in many ways kept him a Christian because mm-hmm. they were willing to stand by the scriptures mm-hmm. and the Christian teaching. Yeah. I think that people appreciate that and they will detect it when you, when you have no spine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you an example of that. Yeah. Um, someone I knew from, from one of the churches I've worked in, um, they, they, they had a son, um, they had a son whose wife divorced him in order to marry another woman who also divorced her husband. So you had two families. There's a bunch of kids in the mix. Yeah. Both of the women leave the husband so that they can go into some kind of lesbian marriage, whatever yeah, you marriage. Know, I'll yeah. call it. Um, completely destroys these families. Mm-hmm. And then where do these women go? Well, they're, they're being blessed by the ELCA church. Oh, right. They're yeah. just welcoming men and saying, good for you yeah. guys. You guys are finding true love and all of that. It's like, there's the church of God. I mean, like right. huge, huge yeah, asterisk from, there. yeah. But people are <laughs> they're calling themselves the church of God. Yeah. Yeah. And they're blessing a lesbian marriage where they have left and abandoned and have, their husbands yeah. and their children. Yeah. And they're saying this is the good and gracious will of God. Yeah. And it's what what kind of image has that put forward for anyone that wants to strive towards any don't even have to put in like a good life, but just a reasonable and non just absolutely right. absurd life. Yeah. You know, where do I go find that? Well, the message that that church is putting on is well, you're not going to find it here because we're yeah. we're all for absolute insanity. Yeah. Okay. Who are you attracting? I mean, once again, it's not about practicality, but practically, who are you like? Who, yeah. are you, who are you trying to speak to here? Yeah, you're not doing any good. What do yeah. people want? They want someone that says, "Actually, no that that's that's yeah. not good." You know, and the people that they're pleasing still hate Christ. Yeah, they're opposed to Christ. Yeah. Um, another example, not specifically Christian, but there's a law professor at uh, University of Ohio there in Columbus. Uh, she said that the American constitution is a racist document at, in every era, every era, even in the civil rights era, it's mm. inherently this racist document. It perpetuates, that's what perpetuates racism, advances racism in every era. So even in the civil rights era, even in the era in which this nation spilt the blood of thousands of its own sons, that wasn't enough for you. Mm-hmm. These people hate you mm-hmm. and will not. And so why are you trying to compromise um, on that which loves you? Drawing it back to Christ whenever the world wants us to compromise on the doctrines of Christ, on his scriptures. They want you to compromise these things. And they don't ask you to compromise because they love you and they would love you if you compromised. They ask you to compromise because they hate Christ. Mm-hmm. They hate you. And why would you compromise uh, the gift which has been given to you by the one who loves you? Yeah, that's that's why the Lord speaks so um, strongly about the the idolatry, the adultery. That's it's always categorized as adulterous mm-hmm. when Israel departs from Him who has given His word of love. He's sealed them. He's called them as His own, and then they forfeit this in order to be like the nations. Yeah, 
what the what the church needs now overwhelmingly is who, who's the UFC boxer or the UFC Khabib Nurmagomedov. Yeah, no, he, he's an Islam or yeah. uh, Muslim. Well, we but, need him to convert to Christianity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we need we need Christians that have that same kind of gumption about them and that same type of fortitude. Yeah. Because if you want, like, if you want, because a lot of people that are watching, so I'd love to be like an evangelist. I'd love to help people into Christianity. Yeah. Well, quit trying to overthink it. Quit trying to yeah. do a bunch of stuff or like bend over backwards or like, yeah. you know, be be two-sided on issues yeah. and just just speak with full strength and mm-hmm. fortitude and conviction yeah. on the things that you're supposed to speak yeah. with conviction on. People are attracted to that. Yeah. People say, well, that person's got words, but they actually believe what they're saying. Yeah. And that will attract more people than any kind of fancy words or, you know, ability to go into some kind of, you know, party or something where like there's a bunch of people that are not Christians and you can mm-hmm. kind of like sweet talk them. And then maybe yeah. they go, oh, this guy's normal, you know, right? quit, quit that out. Yeah. Just just stand for what you believe in and yeah. believe in what you stand for. Yeah. And you do that and that will absolutely attract people. Yeah. And if, just, and, and it, like the, to, to also... And you don't have to do it with malice, no. you know. Yeah, it's just this is uncompromised. We can't hand this over, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would have nothing to offer you if we compromise on this. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, you know, the true gospel of Christ, the mm-hmm. forgiveness in Him, and the order that comes from the the, the great Father of Lights, from whom all gift, good things come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what it is. But uh, there's so there's no malice, but we we cannot compromise on these things. Yeah, um, and. I think that is very threatening to to weak men, mm-hmm. to weak people, um, and we have to understand that. But um, and so we want to be able to be accessible, but uh, there's there can be no compromise. Mm-hmm. We've lost too much in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what else might help? What's that? The Ballad of the White Horse. I agree. By G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. Should we go there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna yeah. have to pull it up at some point, by the way. What's um but yeah, if where you, should you pull it up? Yeah. Um you know, Google Chesterton Ballad of the White Horse Gutenberg. It's on Project Gutenberg, so you can read it all there G-U-T-E-N-B, for free. T E N B other stuff. E N B, yeah. 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 Um, you can just kind of look that up. So introduce so what is Ballad of the White Horse and why is it right? So I uh uh the Ballad of the White Horse is one of the I think as far as I know now, it is the last major English ballad written in yeah, ballad written in the English language, and you know by G.K. Chesterton, of course. And it is whenever I was in undergrad, it was billed to me as a response to nihilism. <laughs> That's hmm. so I thought, oh yeah, I'll check it out. Um, and I maybe that was putting it simply, but I do think that the one of the criticisms leveled against Chester- Chesterton after Heretics was that he was only ever attacking something and never provided a positive view of of his position, which is what he tries to pick up in Orthodoxy. Right. And um, in my opinion, the Ballad of the White Horse is one of the best positive expressions of what Chesterton stands for. And it's set in England in the ninth century and it is built upon the historical events of the the war between the Vikings or the Danes and the Anglo-Saxons, between Alfred, uh, king of Wessex, and Guthrum, uh, the king of the Danes. And you know it's going to be epic 
right? And Already. Al- Alfred and the Saxons, those, that's a Christian nation, right? The Anglo-Saxons, yes. And then yeah. Guthrow and, and the Danes, that's a non-Christian Guthrum, like, pagan yes, Viking. And, and Guthrum was the leader, get this, the great heathen army is what they called it. Hmm. The great heathen. So they were necessarily inherently opposed. Yeah, right right there. Uh, yep, perfect. And go ahead and scroll down and you'll be able to see the uh, table of contents. This is just his notes right there. Um, okay, so. So is, that, is there anything else we should know about this? Yeah, so the, just a little bit of intro. The kingdom of, uh, the Danes controlled the kingdom of East Anglia. And they had settled there and they they would constantly raid into Wessex. And Guthrum leading his heathen army, they would go into Wessex and they would take prisoners, they would raid, they would destroy things, and then Alfred would have to pay him off to stop invading, to stop this. And then Guthrum would break the treaty. And this happened, I think, two or three times. And uh, the the Christians had been defeated by Guthrum. Like they could not stand up against him. That's why they're paying him off. You, you can't, if you don't have, you're, if you're not able to just evict them, yeah, then you're going to have to pay them off. If they could have kicked them out, they wouldn't have had to pay them off. So Guthrum knows this and he's taking advantage of this. The last great battle before the Ballad of the White Horse and the battle that it's centering on is the Battle of Ethendune um, or now Eddington. But uh, the last battle that they had fought, they had whooped the Saxons so well that Alfred had now taken his force and they were hitting in, they were hiding in the swamps there in Wessex. And uh, so that's that's kind of the setting. Now, as the Ballad of the White Horse unfolds, now we are walking kind of in the middle of the story with Alfred and he has seen the symbol that is, and he's been visited by the lady um, to uh, instructing him now is the time to fight hmm. and the Lord will grant you victory. <laughs> so he's, uh, but he's had so many defeats that it's kind of like, well, is it the time to fight? Um, and one of the first scenes that I want to share is the night before this battle, they're getting ready for the battle of Ethendun. Alfred goes to scout the land a little bit and he's up on this hill and he's got this campfire and the Danes can see his campfire from below and they think, oh, well, there's this Saxon peasant up there and we'll go up there and share his fire with him and mock him for what we're about to do to them. And they they sit down and Alfred has this lyre and they take turns passing it around the camp, uh, around the campfire singing about their glories, their triumphs, how they destroy the Christians, how they're, you know, rabbits and monks. And they, they're um, resigned to, the, they're kicked out into the cold. And they'll brag about how they have these great mead halls and victory and no spear can destroy them. All spears split on them. You know, they're impervious to others trying to take them down. Guthrum his story is a little bit different. His ballad or his his song is a little bit different because he So can, Guthrum's at this campfire too. Yes. The other king. It's okay. Guthrum and some of the other some of the other warlords there with him. But Guthrum is not so full of himself. He's he is become nihilistic now because he he begins to believe that there's nothing left in this world. And he talks about how the glory in this life um, is kind of the only thing, but even that's not, is nothing. And he's just, yeah, he's just kind of become nihilistic. But so what Chesterton is kind of doing there is presenting all these different worldviews. And 
I I think it kind of compares with uh, Plato's Republic, how he's having these conversations with all these different perspectives, might makes right and so forth. And then the liar passes to Alfred and you have Alfred's response. They think he's a peasant here. Yeah. So if you click on book four, The Woman in the Forest, that'll take us to the end of The Harp of Alfred. Now go ahead and uh, scroll up. Because Alfred's song is right there towards the end. Now scroll up, up, up. Um, yeah, let's stop right there. Uh, down a little bit more. Okay, let's stop right there. Now, I think that just kind of setting this context with Guthrum and his perspective. Guthrum ends, Wherefore, I am a great king and waste the world in vain. Because man hath not other power, save that in dealing death for dower, he may forget it for an hour to remember it again. Mm. He says, we're just doing this until our time comes. It's like appeasement. Like yeah. just, just to be are distracted. Distracted yeah. from the inevitability of death. Yeah. Uh, so this is kind of, you know, the, the young man is full of himself, might makes right, there's glory, there's all this. But the the old man, Guthrum now, this... He's been through it all, and he knows that at the end of the day, he's still just going to die. There's no there's no purpose. Mm -hmm. No amount of me, no amount of women, yeah. no amount of money, no yeah. amount of power, no amount of military victory is giving yeah. him any more meaning to his life. Yes. So he is empty. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting is, is that that is a heathen position. And as Christians, we are not to subscribe to this. We are not losing the word of God prevails forever. That's why we shouldn't compromise it on mm -hmm. it, right? That we're going to win. We are winning because the word of God is proclaimed and the kingdom of God is extended through that proclamation of his word. And uh, it is interesting, Pilate, whenever he's talking to Jesus, he says, what is truth? You mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's kind of in many ways in the same position as Guthrum. Mm -hmm. What is truth? And... When Jesus is talking about his kingdom, it's not advanced. He says, if my kingdom was of this world, my people would fight. Mm -hmm. But it's not of this world. It is proclaimed, it is advanced through the truth. Mm -hmm. So when we preach the word of God, we're advancing truth. And we're not given to this hopelessness of Guthrum. Mm -hmm. I think, so there's something about that. Now, but what does that look like? Because it seems like we're being beat on all fronts, like it seemed for Alfred. Mm -hmm. And slowly, his hands and and uh, and slowly his hands and thoughtfully fell from the lifted lyre, and the owls moaned from the mighty trees, till Alfred caught it to his knees and smote it as in ire. He heaved the head of the harp on high and swept the framework bared, and his stroke had all the rattle and spark of horses flying hard. He says, When God put man in a garden, he girt him with a sword and sent him forth a free knight that he might betray his lord. Hmm. He brake him and betrayed him, and fast and far he fell, till you and I may stretch our necks and burn our beards in hell. And he's talking about how Adam betrayed God. Mm -hmm. But though I lie on the floor of the world with the seven sins for rods, I would rather fall with Adam than rise with all your gods. Ooh. So there's a good comparison. It's better to it's better to have the just punishment. Yeah. It, it, but still yeah. call God God. Then yes. to kind of rise your fists yeah. against God and, and triumph. And he's got this hope of the second Adam, I would, you know, yeah. that, that there's, with Adam, 
the, you know, you have obviously the fall into sin with Adam, but then also the the second Adam, who is the greater Adam, he is the spiritual man. Yeah. And he is, life flows from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what have the strong gods given? Where have the glad gods led when Guthrum sits on a hero's throne and asks if he is dead? Mm. Sirs, I am but a nameless man, a rhymester without home, yet since I come of the Wessex clay and carry the cross of Rome, I will even answer the mighty earl that asked of Wessex men why they be meek and monkish folk, and bow to the white lord's broken yoke. What sign have we save blood and smoke? Here is my answer then. That on you is fallen the shadow, and not upon the name, meaning the divine name. Mm. That though we scatter and though we fly, and you hang over us like the sky, you are more tired of victory than we are tired of shame. Mm. That this, you do see this in the world, the lack of satisfaction with the world's victories. There is no end uh, to the dissatisfaction they will have whenever they seem to get what they want. So the martyr is more fulfilled yeah. than the the Roman guard yeah. that that strikes the sword. Yeah, and I mean, and you, you just see this like people are not content. Uh, you know, Augustine speaks, "My my heart is restless until it rests in you." Mm-hmm. And we know, as a matter of fact, that no matter what face the world puts on, if not in Christ, there is no satisfaction. So they they grow they grow tired of this, and evidence of the fact of that is that they move on and that sin compounds itself to move on to sin to sin to sin so it's this kind of um a hopeless in many ways if that's all that they have it's this hopeless uh tiring of of these perceived worldly victory Mm -hmm. so you're more tired of victory than we are tired of shame and i in that i kind of think of like paul who says that he glories in his weakness because it means that christ is strong yeah. And Christ is the one that has, you know, has saved him and is, is his pride now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's in, uh, maybe it's the everlasting man. Mm. It could be orthodoxy, but, um, where Chesterton talks about, he just kind of talks about those pesty Christians because that's like, it's like every time it feels like the world has like squashed them down, yeah. like they end up rising up with like bigger fury. And it's one of these, like, it's just, it's so frustrating from the world's yeah. perspective that wants to squash down Christianity, but the more they try to squash, the more it actually grows. Yeah. What is it? There's like, it's almost like a, a uh, he's got a great quote I can't think of, but it, it's something like the, um, a house that grows in stature as it falls. Hmm. And uh, he, he puts it a little bit better, but it's mm-hmm. it's something along those lines. Yeah. Um, it reminds, so another thing related to the, the whole speech really of Alfred here is it reminds me also of St. Lawrence of Rome and how he the the emperor heard that the church possessed great wealth and so he says he summons lawrence and says i hear the church possesses great wealth you need to produce the treasures of the church you have three days Mm -hmm. and so lawrence shows up with all these poor and hungry and tired masses of rome and he says behold the treasures of the church Mm. and they killed him for it Mm -hmm. but uh but it's true that there's the shame of the world, the foolishness of the world has confounded the wise yeah. and those that have. Um, so uh, that though you hunt the Christian man like a hare on the hillside, the hare still has more heart to run than you have heart to ride. 
that though all lances split on you, all swords be heaved in vain, we have more lust again to lose than you to win again. And I I think that there's something really there that uh, the world always wants you, and it's tempting young men especially, to satisfy the desires of the flesh. That's all the time. Mm-hmm. Pursue lust, pursue your desires, and both to men and women. That's the mantra of the world. And as we've already noted, that that is unsatisfying. But we have more lust again to lose. Like we can deny these things Mm -hmm. and put aside the dark deeds of our former selves Mm -hmm. and gain power, the power of Christ. Yeah. And now like I actually, I can take pride in the denial of these things through Christ who strengthens me. Not And there's no pride to be had in gaining these things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Your Lord sits high in the saddle, a broken-hearted king, but our King Alfred lost from fame, fallen among foes or bonds of shame. They're, you know, they weren't sure if Alfred was dead or not. Mm-hmm. The, the, the army, it appeared that all things had disintegrated. Uh, so our King Alfred lost from shame, fallen among foes or bonds of shame, in I know not what mean trade or name has still some song to sing. Even if he's dead, he's still got something yeah. to say. Yeah. yeah. Our monks go robed in rain and snow, but the heart of flame therein. But you go clothed in feasts and flames when all is ice within. Because Guthrum does mention in his speech how he, yeah, he's just sitting in this warm mead hall and it's just nothing. It's like, what's the point? Hmm. And Alfred is kind of drawing on this. It's like, you know, that there's no point. Yeah. So dead inside, even though on the surface it looks like he has everything. Yeah. Really, he's empty inside. Yeah. Um, nor shall all iron dooms make dumb men wondering ceaselessly, if it be not better to fast for joy than feast for misery. Mm-hmm. And there you can see the joy in, in the deprivation, joy in the denial of self. Mm-hmm. And this is the joy that comes to us through Christ who, you know, he's denied himself and, uh, and then he was greatly exalted. Nor monkish order only slides down his field to fin. All things achieved and chosen pass as white horse fades in the grass. No work of Christian men. Ere the sad gods that made your gods saw their sad sunrise pass, the white horse of the white horse veil that you have left to darken and fail was cut out of the grass. Uh, real quick on this point here, he talks about ere the sad gods that made your gods saw their sad sunrise pass. I I believe that this is a reference to the background of the prose edda the prose edda is the earliest recorded uh, writings that we have on the norse mythology so Mm. thor on all of these you know odin all of that is preserved for us in writing the earliest is the prose edda and i i believe that was the 13th century um so but in the Prosetta, it does, it talks about the creation of the world and the God Odin, the God Thor and all these people, these are easier. They're not, they are not the gods that created the world. So they were created by other gods. And they usurped, which were that. destroyed, mm-hmm. not necessarily usurped by them. They were so, just destroyed. Yeah, us. I'd have, I'm a little bit foggy on it, but like even the world was created out of the rotting brain of a dead, a dead giant, mm-hmm. you know, and these sorts of things. So, and so there's a kind of veiled criticism, I shouldn't say veiled criticism, but 
this acknowledgement that their gods are not God in the same way that we know God, because mm-hmm. our God is outside of space, time, and matter. Mm. But their gods are subject to these things. They were created. And the whole point within Christianity is that God is uncreated. The Son is begotten, not created. The Holy Spirit is, proceeds, is not created. So they they stand outside of these things, and they are that, and therefore they cannot be affected by mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. They cannot be manipulated in this way. And so, he's so he's mocking their gods. So their gods are below change in time. So change itself yeah. in time will beat down their yeah. gods. So there's this and, higher yes. uncontrollable thing yeah. that they are all prey to, and even their gods are prey to, which will destroy them all in the end. Yeah. Well, and uh, there's a hopelessness about the Norse gods that the Aesir. Thor and all of these men is it's already recorded what's going to happen to them. Thor is going to die by poisonous, uh, by being poisoned by the great uh, world serpent Jormungandr. Uh, all the gods are going to be destroyed, and there's the sons of Mushbalain are coming in this boat for judgment, mm-hmm. and the great wolf Fenris is coming. So the in the Norse mythology have this very vivid understanding of, of, of the end of the world coming mm-hmm. and they want to fight and be strong and go to Valhalla where they will fight. And Valhalla is just a, a major like frat, frat party yeah. where they're drinking and fighting <laughs> the whole time Yeah, in preparation to fight with the gods, with the Aesir against the sons of Mushpaline and Fenris and all of these at the end of the world. So Valhalla is this place where this final battle is going to take place. Along where with they're preparing for the bi- final battle. So how long do they prepare in Valhalla? Until it happens. And what happens when the final battle happens? Everything's destroyed. Everything's destroyed. Yeah. So you have a noble victory or a noble defeat. A noble defeat. And that's in the end. But it's the-, the end. So the gods themselves will even die. Now there is, and some, you know, I think that people kind of dispute whether this was added on, but there's one god of the, one of the Aesir who does come back from, from the dead. So I think Lewis draws on that imagery, Balder. Yeah. And he's he's one that does come back from hell. Um, but also contained within the Prosetta is this, um, they depict how man will, there's one man and one woman who are hidden away in this tree whenever Ragnarok happens, the great battle at the end. And that from them will come, a new creation. Um, but so there's some cyclical like Phoenix type style, possibly. like out of the, out of the yeah. fire will come. Yeah. And that, and then it'll probably repeat itself. Yeah. Well, maybe, but I, but I, again, I think that the more kind of prominent aspect of this is that we're all preparing for the end when mm-hmm. there will be nothingness mm-hmm. and destruction. It's just all going downhill. Yeah. And so that's why he talks about these sad gods that made your gods. And even we know that those gods are going to find their end as well. Mm-hmm. So, Interesting. Um, and then he says, therefore, your end is on you, is on you and your kings, not for a fire in Elifin, not that your gods are nine or ten, but because it is only Christian men guard even heathen things. Ooh, I love that line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what What is it? The... Uh... Oh, I forget. There's there's kind of a good article that I read, and then it basically talked about how even this old paganism is only kept alive by Christianity. Yeah, you know that um, right, right? Like Aristotle's teachings, Plato's teachings, like these things mm-hmm. where we've talked about this before on this podcast. But these things are not. Um, it's not like Christianity is like molds with these things, but if there's good things in those, Christianity yeah. is able to kind of baptize them or bring yeah. them into the Christian faith, and therefore, even old pagan thought, the good aspects of it. Mm-hmm 
are kept alive because yeah. they have some connection to Christianity. Yeah, or, yeah, to the ordering of the world. To the ordering, that's a better yeah. way to put it. Yeah, and um, perfect example of this is the preservation of the story of Beowulf. That's a preserved by Christians, and it's been Christianized. The scholars believe that there's an earlier version that predates the Christian, but they didn't bother to record it. Mm. Christians bothered to record it and, um, you know, have, have Christianized it. And uh, some argument could be made the same for the prose Edda, but Snorri Sturluson, who's the guy that preserved it, I think he was the king of Iceland, he, it's questionable, you know, uh, whether he was Christian, actually Christian or not. And he's even kind of associated with a, a kind of pagan resurgence against Christianity in Iceland, if I remember correctly. Um, but the point, I think the point remains that there's something about Christianity that is able to preserve um, there, we are able to preserve things that reflect the order of God. And you think even about St. Boniface and how he evangelized the Germans, that he he goes up there, he chops down Thor's tree, and they're like, yeah, Thor's going to strike you down. And then he says to turn to the fir tree. If they need a tree to fir- turn to the fir tree because it it's an evergreen representative of the resurrection of eternal life, and it points up to heaven. And he um, he makes the the Christmas wreath because it's also evergreen and mm-hmm. the the circle is a symbol of eternal life. Uh, so Saint Boniface kind of is another example, I think, of how Christian men preserve even heathen things. He Christianizes these things. Yeah, and that's the background for the Christmas tree. Yeah, the Christmas tree, the Advent wreath. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Um, yeah, for our God hath blessed creation, calling it good. I know what spirit with whom you blindly band hath blessed destruction with his hand. Yet by God's death, the stars shall stand and the small apples grow. And I think of, you know, there's this kind of uh, popular quote from Luther. What's like, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? And he says, plant an apple tree or plant a tree or something like that. Mm. Just this, uh, a kind of contentment with the created world, knowing that it's been created by God and he Mm. has created all things good. Um, both when uh, when he comes again, I, he's uh, we want to be about his work when he comes again. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's it's just a, I think it really resonates here with what he's talking about. Yet by God's death, the stars shall stand, yeah, and the small apples grow. By the death of Christ, the world goes on, and He will redeem it. So that I I love that passage because when people feel discouraged and they feel taken down, it's like. Are we, are we winning? Mm-hmm. You know, they're worried. And it seems like everything's turned against them and the world is turned against them and you're always losing. Mm-hmm. But, and this is a theme you probably pick up, you know, in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. like Sam's speech. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, it would take us to, yeah. Can you look yeah. up Sam's speech? Um, it's, yeah, that's beautiful. Right. Cause I mean, that's when, yeah. oh, I'll just have him pick it up here. So yeah. I mean, the background here, right. Is Frodo's despairing a little bit. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's at the end of the two towers. Um, so yeah, Frodo's despairing a little bit and Sam gives this wonderful speech and Sam's, uh, Sam might be, he was never my favorite character, but he's becoming more and more. I think he was certainly, uh, Tolkien's favorite character. Mm. He ends up raising Sam up as kind of the greatest of all the heroes, mm-hmm. really. Um, I mean, he does a good job of letting the heroes be heroes. He doesn't try to create this kind of dark side, good side, like heroes are heroes. They're supposed to be virtuous. Like you strive after these characters, but the cool thing about Bilbo or sorry about, uh, um, Sam 
is Sam is the servant of Frodo. So he's the lowest of the low. Yeah. And in the end, he's the one that actually carries Frodo on the darkest of all journeys on the, mm. you know, up Mount Doom. Mm. So Sam is this wonderful character that really takes on character throughout the three books of becoming, having maybe the greatest fortitude of any of the characters. He's got maybe the darkest road, you could argue. Mm -hmm. And his role is not only to walk the road, but also to carry his master. Yeah. And, um, and is, he, so he's just a yeah. wonderful character. Yeah, here, here it is. So, um, so Frodo, well, I mean, look at this. He says, I can't do this, Sam. So Frodo's kind of despairing. You know, it certainly seems like the world's closing in on him. And Sam responds, he says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And what's really cool is in, if you flash forward to the, um, to the Return of the King and towards the end when Frodo and Sam are actually in Mordor. Mm -hmm. um and so they're in like this darkened land and the sky is completely black i mean that's the, the nature of mordor and as they're i think they're actually on mount doom at this time and there's this part where um there's this little star that shines through mm -hmm. and there's another great quote from sam but basically what he reflects on is he says no matter how dark things seem there's always light out of reach that but you know the light's there so yeah. they can't see the stars they do get a little glimmer of one yeah. but the whole point is even though all this darkness is there what is above them and they know it it's it's yeah. the heavens it's all these stars that's there yeah. you can't actually blot that out so his whole point is knowing that there's this greater ideal there's this greater good that outlives the darkness mm -hmm. that's what you're fighting for yeah. and that's what can't be taken away there's nothing in this world that can stand between you and that meaning to everything that you're doing yeah um and hence that's what drives sam forward and gives him the capacity to do what he does yeah yeah that uh is one of the most moving scenes ever mm -hmm. is that right there towards the end i love that i love that speech there at the end of the two towers mm -hmm. and uh um, I'd have to remember, I, I do not know the Lord of the Rings like that, mm -hmm. like your encyclopedic knowledge of Lord of the Rings. So I'll, you'll have to, to point the page number out to me because I want to read that. Um, there's a couple of things I know well. C.S. Yeah. Lewis and Lord of the Rings are, yeah, <laughs> but that's a lot though. Um, yeah. you know, I think I, cause I saw the other day somebody talking about the effects of Lord of the Rings on just like fantasy and everything. And I have to admit that I, just so much of like the imagination of fantasy and stuff and the way that people treat it and deal with it. Now, mm -hmm. some people like, you know, are just ripping these ideas off. They don't really are, they're not continuing in these same great footsteps, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's impact on English, uh, fantasy literature is just, you know, unparalleled. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also I have to admit, I've only read the first book. I haven't read the second and the third book. Really? Yeah. I, I rely mostly on, you know, people like yourself. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd like to read that for myself, that yeah. passage. Yeah. 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 I would highly recommend. I mean, there, there's even parts, there's whole parts. We saw it in the first one with uh, mm -hmm. their journey into 
the woods where they meet Tom, meet Tom, uh, Tom Bombadil and all of this. Yeah. Right. And that's, those are things that they, I mean, it would have been so tough for them to put it into the movie. I think they yeah. did a great job in the movies. Um, I thought, I thought those, you movies, do see him in, I think they have him in the Hobbit, right? You do see him depicted in one of the movies, don't you? Uh, Radagast, they bring in, um, okay. one of the other wizards. There's three wizards okay. in middle yeah. earth. And one of them is, uh, one of them, of course, is Saruman. And then the other one is Radagast. I think those are the only three, but Radagast is like the kind of wizard of nature or whatnot. So he comes in okay. to that movie. I don't that's think Bombadil's there, but I could be wrong. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking of. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I, uh, that's, that was the first speech of Alfred. Do you guys want to hear about a little bit about the battle? Yeah. Okay. So ben, Bennett says yes, so we can do it. Okay. So let's go ahead and go back up to the top to the table of contents here. Um, you know, and kind of back to think Chesterton, uh, uh, I think both Tolkien and Lewis attribute a lot of their, like they, they say they were greatly affected by influenced by Chesterton. So we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings without Chesterton. Yeah. Yeah. Chesterton and George, well, George MacDonald might've been more C.S. Lewis, but, um, those two certainly had a big effect and both of them wrote in, uh, a little bit different ways, but they, they had a lot of that. I mean, they were, in some ways they were even more pioneers than what Lewis and Tolkien do with their fiction. Certainly what, um, what Tolkien does, he kind of perfects that. And that becomes the gold standard moving forward for, I mean, he's, that's not, you know, some people think like, okay, so Tolkien was kind of that great um, epic writer of the thirties and he's got his own style mm-hmm. of, of doing, you know, that kind of an epic, you know, and there's probably that kind of style in the 1800s and 1700s. Like, no, no, no. Like he's, he's, he's the first person creating a yeah. world in the way that he does. Like he is, he yeah. is completely original in everything that he does. Um, you know, you've got the ballad, right? So the ballad, you know, that's kind of something that would have been beforehand, mm-hmm. um, that Chesterton's doing there. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the old epics, which would be kind of these, you know, uh, yeah, Beowulf is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. want to learn a little about Beowulf. I don't yeah. know if you. Tolkien, because Tolkien has a translation of Beowulf and like, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe, I don't know if it's translation. He has uh, this introductory essay on it, I think, yeah, and, and very um, impactful, like on Beowulf studies and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. So they're, they're definitely first in that. All right. Uh, book five or big, book six, Ethendune, the slayings of the chiefs. This will just be, and then scroll up a little bit. All right. Um, and right here, let's just stop. So, uh, actually go up one stanza and one more. Sorry. <laughs> this will be good. So that right now before the battle, the, they go meet in the middle of the field, Alfred, Guthrum, and then they're kind of the men with them. Mm-hmm. And then some trash talk happens. And this guy, Harold, uh, goes to try to kill one of Alfred's men. This is there, Colin. Colin's a Gael. He's from Ireland. Um, and so here it begins. To his great gold earring, Harold tugged back the feathered tail. And Swift had sprung the arrow, but Swifter sprang the Gael. So Harold grabs a bow and arrow from a slave nearby. And he goes to shoot Colin with this bow and arrow. Now, the bow and arrow is... A, whim, a, a, a weapon for for women mm-hmm. or for cowards. Yeah. Because if you look in the Iliad, Paris has the bow and arrow. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Harold is breaking these conventions of war mm-hmm. and 
displays his cowardice and how he's just a, a lowlife. Mm-hmm. But Colin responds, whirling the one sword round his head, a great wheel in the sun. He sent it splendid through the sky, flying before the shaft could fly. It smote Earl Harold over the eye and blood began to run. Colin stood bare and weaponless. And there you have this, the imagery of his innocence, hmm. you know, that being bare and kind of naked is this symbol of um, purity, no lies. He's honest. Errol Harold, as in pain, strove for a smile, put a hand to put hand to head, stumbled and suddenly fell dead. And all the small white daisies all waxed red with the blood out of his brain. And all at that marvel of the sword cast like a stone to slay like David and Goliath. Hmm. cried out, said Alfred, uh, and cried out and said, Alfred, who would see signs must give all things. Barely, no, man shall not taste of victory till he throws his sword away. Hmm. Then Alfred, Prince of England, and all the Christian earls unhooked their swords and held them up, each offered to Colin like a cup of chrysolite and pearls. And the king said, do thou take my sword who have done this deed of fire? For this is the manner of Christian men, whether of steel or priestly pen, that they cast their hearts out of their kin to get their heart's desire. A man who seeks to save himself will lose his life. Yeah. But he who forsakes his life for my sake shall gain it. Yeah. Um, and, and you also see Alfred, this noble king, like even with, the, with his song with Guthrum, he, he refers to himself as nameless. He's a nobody. And now when he sees true, true courage, he is not threatened by this. He honors it. And this is a good ruler, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, and whether ye swear a hive of monks or one fair wife to friend, this is the manner of Christian men, that their oath endures the end. For love, our Lord, at the end of the world, sits a red horse like a throne with a brazen helm and an iron bow, but one arrow alone. Love with the shield of the broken heart, ever his bow doth bend with a single shaft for a single prize, and the ultimate bolt that parts and flies comes with a thunder of split skies and a sound of souls that rend. So it's kind of apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. So shall you earn a king's sword who cast your sword away. And the king took with a random eye a rude axe from a hind hard by and turned him to the fray. For the swords of the earls of Daneland flamed round the fallen lord. The first blood woke the trumpet tune, as in monk's rhyme or wizard's rune, beginneth the battle of Ethandun with the throwing of the sword. It's Man, epic. That's epic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I just, I, I, I love the scenery there that there's this man that is courageous and the King recognizes this courage. He recognizes you have to forfeit your life in order to gain your life. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the last, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And no, I was going to say, um, it's either Chesterton or Lewis. I can't remember which, but they, um, they talk about how, I think it might be Chesterton. They, he talks about, because he brings that quote up of uh, yeah. he, who, he who wants to save his life will lose it. Yeah. And he basically just says, this is really practical advice. And he uses the <laughs> example of like right. a uh, like someone who's yeah. um, in war, for instance. And if they're in war and they're scared of saving their life, they're going to end up losing their life, right? Yeah. Because they're not going to make the right moves. But it's the right. courageous man who's willing to lose his life that actually goes on yeah. and makes the right decision. So it's that same kind of thing in our life, right? If you're always if you're always trying to protect all of the things that you have, and you're not willing to lose those things, then in the end, you're just going to be kind of consumed by those things. You're never going to actually accomplish any of the great things that you want to strive for. It's the man who doesn't, isn't tied down by those things, willing to lose all things, even his life as kind of the capstone. 
he's the one who is fully aligned and has his full allegiance to that which is good and therefore he actually achieves that which is good yeah yeah and um you remember that scene in band of brothers with captain spears like he kind of says that he's like yeah you think you're art you think that you're they they kind of ask him like how he's able to do it and he's like because he says you could do it you just think that there's a chance to get out of this or you mm-hmm. you're, you know you don't think yourself already dead i can't mm-hmm. remember the quote but it's 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 a good one that's worth pulling out you pull on bennett's heartstrings there <laughs> the dude yeah it is it is amazing yeah 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 uh that i i don't know if it's how close it is to the scene where he ru- where he runs through the village do you, do you know what i'm talking about no he, it's been a while since i've seen this. everything yeah yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, and I that's like the perfect portrayal of who of who he was of Captain Spears. But uh Yeah. Did we find it? I'm just trying to go with it. You guys can Yeah. Okay. Well, um if if you want, we could go to this next segment. I think we can do one more. Yeah, um, and this would be the last one, and this is perhaps the most important one. Okay, good. Okay. So if you want to go up to the table of contents when you get the chance, and I'll I'll tell you which uh, which one it is. You know, you don't seem like it's just. I think it's one of those powerful scenes in a movie, maybe ever. I also like to be grandiose when I introduce things, but sure, yeah. um, (laughs) Okay, so he's got it here. I was scared. We're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But is it Blythe? Yeah, Blythe. Yeah, yeah. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Without mercy, without compassion, without remorse, all war depends on it. Oof. Oof. (laughs) Greatest generation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that that scene in Band of Brothers where they come across the – they go through the town – you know, where everything's, or they, they, they find the concentration camp for the first time. Oh, yeah. Right. And for these soldiers, concentration camps were myth, not myth, not the right word, but fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. So they thought that these were most likely kind of stories that were being perpetrated yeah. by the U.S. to kind of keep, make soldiers really motivated to go off to war. Right. So that was kind of the, the normal expectation of these things. Some people might have believed that maybe they were the case, but no one thought that that was really, hmm. that the Germans were actually torturing and starving, you know millions of jews and then they come across that concentration camp and in that in that scene as it plays out like you can just see the absolute shock some of the some of mm-hmm. the soldiers are vomiting oh, right, right? Yeah. and they're just they're they're so horrified like they've just walked into hell kind of like what we were talking about the other day with the conquistadors yeah right and they're going yeah. into these aztec and mine is it the aztecs or mayans aztecs yeah. aztecs right and they're just yeah. they're seeing the depravity of this completely pagan you know, s- sacrificing humans on a regular yeah. basis type world. And they think they've walked into hell. Yeah. And then in the band of brothers, then they go into the town, right? And it's this kind of like well put together town and it's Christmas right. Eve and all these well-dressed Germans are going into church. You know, it's just, it's, that's a powerful yeah. scene. I, yeah. And then they kind of start abusing them, don't they? They're like, take them out to the concentration camp. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that I thought that they didn't know anything about the concentration camps. Why? But I guess they would have had to have heard something about it. It was so close. I think the smell was even just, I mean, strong. How could the smell not be strong enough? Yeah. Well, as in, I didn't know that the Americans were trying to, were utilizing that as a propaganda, not propaganda, but like to, you know, 
to get people to recruit uh, for recruitment. Purposes. I think it took a little while. So I think, uh-huh. I think it took, I think even, um, Oh, who was it? Was it Roosevelt? Roosevelt's the president at that time, right? Yeah. I yeah. think even Roosevelt himself did not believe in, in the concentration camps okay. for a while. And one of his advisors did. And it was the, it was the Christian advisor mm. that, that believed in it because wow. he believed in the depravity of man. Um, so it wasn't until there was more evidence given to Chesterton, yeah. but either way, the stories, the stories, you know, they became larger and larger yeah. and then eventually they became kind of validated fact, but there yeah. was that process of, I, you know, it's really interesting because it's sobering that, um, the, the people thought that that couldn't have been possible. Like now we kind of treat it like, yeah, it happened, you know, and it's going on in China right now. China's yeah. got concentration camps, yeah. you know, for the, and uh, Korea. Yeah. Korea. Yeah. 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 Um, How wild is that? Those things are going on absolutely right now. Bizarre. Yeah. Bizarre. And the, so just it's the, not history. It's mo- yeah. it's modern. It's yeah. right now. There are, I forget the numbers. It's the, uh, is it, uh, it's a lot of Middle Eastern than Muslims that are in it. There's some Christians. Oh, the Uyghurs. Is that what it is? Yeah, in China. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, peels back, exposes the farce, which is, United Nations mm-hmm. humanitarian sort of standards. And I think everybody's a little bit afraid of China. Yeah. You know, they don't want to stir the pot on China. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a good lesson. Like you said, I mean, there's this it, out of the enlightenment period came kind of this facade that man is by his very, very nature good. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the concentration camps and such showed that actually when you make the move and they did that in the 20th century and it was kind of the first time they had really officially done it it had crept up through the yeah. 19th century but in the 20th century they said we don't need any religious shackles on us we want man leading man none of this god leading man leading mm-hmm. man right so i mean this idea like you said of wonder woman going up and kind of breaking yeah. away yeah. the church they tried that in the 20th century like that's not this isn't a new novel idea right. of 2022 or whatever year this, you know, Wonder Woman movie came out. Yeah. That was tried officially in the 1900s and we had the bloodiest, it was the bloodiest century more than the previous 18 put together. World War II wasn't a Christian or religious war. Right. That was a completely secular type war. Yeah. Led by secular men who did not have any kind of faith or religious background. Yeah. And hence, what do you get? You get these concentration camps and you still get these concentration camps from these nations that are not religious. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting that, because I think it was in, heretics or whatever where chesterton's like yeah these people will, in order to prove a point will go and do the very thing that they're trying to that they're speaking against hmm. so in order to prove that there's uh you know that there's no god and something like this and that uh and then that christians are violent or whatever then they go perpetuate some of the greatest violence ever yeah you know and it's in the it's in the rejection of christianity for those very reasons that you then see some of the the greatest offenses mm-hmm. um and yeah and some people misconstrue and try to paint um hitler as a christian he wasn't a christian no oh what was it 60 or six hundred thousand yeah. christian pastors yeah. were put in concentration camps and killed and yeah. exterminated during this process too so yeah. i um so now that's kind of bizarre now the confessional church in um germany was persecuted mm-hmm. yeah yeah, we talked about that with Ryan McPherson a little bit, but okay. yeah, in that there was kind of this remnant of the church and then you had like Bonhoeffer, the remnant of the remnant, and certainly he was thrown in jail and, mm-hmm. and all of this, but yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so look at this. He's got uh, 
how many refugees camps are in China? The Australian strategic policy. So this is from BBC, by the way. So this isn't like, um, I don't know, like LCMS.org. This is, you know, BBC. Yeah. Uh, found evidence in 2020 of more than 380 of these re-education camps in Xinjiang, an increase of 40% on previous wow. estimates. How many people might be in a camp? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if it's on there. But that's just one area too, by the way. I mean, it's not in every province of China, but. Yeah. Uh, China's committing, committing genocide and crimes against humanity. This is probably going to get this video taken down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, da, 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 the Australian strategic policy. There's that number 380 of the re-education camps showed that almost 23,000 residents um, were in a camp or prison in the years 2017. 1.2 million. Uh, 1.2 million. That's bizarre. I mean, not much different than what's, what was going on in Germany. So, yeah. 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 Hmm. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, um, shall we move to this, uh, this yeah, final segment? This, yeah. this is the hope. This is the end. That we have. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to look up out of the white horse again, yeah. And if you want to go up to that uh, table of contents at the very top again, and I'll tell you which one. Uh, There's a got. lot of content there, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a pretty easy read for like an afternoon. Like you two could hours get or through something. it. Yeah. All right. Uh, scroll down a little bit. Uh, the scouring of the horse, and then scroll up. <laughs> And we'll go up a little bit more. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, go down a little bit. If you want to go down more, um, right here. So, at, at the Battle of Ethandun, the Anglo-Saxon shield wall was able to hold strong. Mm-hmm. And they defeated the, the heathen army. Mm. And it was... It, it's miraculous, you know. They they've been defeated so many times. We've already talked about how they've made peace with Guthrum. They've made peace with the heathen army, or you know, like essentially paid them off to stop. And then Guthrum will break the peace over and over again. This time they finally beat them in open combat. And uh, then historically, what happened is Guthrum and his men fled to a fortress where they stayed for two weeks. Mm-hmm. But the Anglo-Saxons besieged them and took all the food stores so that they, they essentially starved them out. And then a peace was made. Um, uh, but here, go and uh, Chesterton is kind of condensing this. So we'll start here. He says, as such a tall and tilted sky sends certain snow or light, so did the eyes of Guthrum change. And the turn was more certain and more strange than a thousand men in flight. Now, if we look at this idea of vision and of sight. We even earlier talked about Paul and the scales falling from his eyes. Mm -hmm. And here Chesterton is talking about the eyes, the vision of Guthrum has changed. And it's, it's something very potent, some powerful, like he, he likens it to the eyes of a thousand men in flight, more certain and more strange. You haven't seen something like this. Mm Mm-hmm. For not till the floor of the skies is split and hellfire shines through the sea or the stars look up through the rent earth's knees cometh such rending of certainties 
as when one wise man truly sees what is more wise than he. Oh, that's good. Guthrum has been given vision. Mm. And I think of him like Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. And Nebuchadnezzar is roaming the, the earth like this beast. And then what does he say? My eyes looked into heaven mm-hmm. and he sees all things. Sees that which is more wise than he. Yeah. You know, what's Lewis say? Pride is pride is looking down on others. And as long as you're looking down on others, you can't see what's above you. Right. Oh. So this is like this. Yeah. His eyes, he's looked up for the first time. Yeah. And the, and that stanza where it's talking about hellfire shining through the sea that um, un, until, uh, you know, the earth is rent and these sorts of things, that's apocalyptic. That's judgment language. Mm-hmm. He shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. And there's this, there's this uh, awareness of the, the wrath and the power um, overhead that, you know, brings this awareness to Guthrum. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, as one, when one wise man truly sees what is more wise than he, he set his horse in the battle breach, even Guthrum of the Dane, and as ever had fallen, fell his brand, a falling tower or many a land, but Gurth the Fowler laid one hand upon his bridal rein. King Guthrum was a great lord and higher than his gods. He put the popes to laughter, he chide the saints with rods. He took this hollow world of ours for a cup to hold his wine. In the parting of the woodways, there came to him a sign. In Wessex, in the forest, in the breaking of the spears, we set a sign on Guthrum to blaze a thousand years. Where the high saddles jostle and the horse tails toss, there rose to the birds flying a roar of dead and dying. In deafness and strong crying, we signed him with the cross. Hmm. For far out to the winding river, the blood ran down for days when we put the cross on Guthrum. In the parting of the ways, Guthrum was baptized. Yeah. And he was christened Athelstan. And uh, um, scholars have uh, verified that the peace between Guthrum, between Athelstan and Alfred lasted. Alfred became his godfather. He was his sponsor in baptism. Really? And um, they found coins minted in the manner of the Anglo-Saxon kings by minted by Athelstan with his Christian name mm. that he converted and even great Guthrum, you know, so that you, you kind of transform from this man who's like questioning whether, you know, what's the meaning in life. And you come from a, this point of like great darkness of Alfred and the Christians being like hares and, but here in this battle, this great splitting of the spears at Ethendune, this man has signed with the cross. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, 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 it speaks to the power of Christ. And I, I see it as this great encouragement for Christians that the cross will reign supreme. And this is the point that Chesterton recognizes. And we won't get into it, but he, as he kind of concludes this work, he recognizes that the war is not over, that we will go on to fight the heathens that they will they will adopt the manner of monks that they will become scribes they'll become writers and our fight with the heathen will not be with spears will not be with swords it will be through words and thoughts and ideas and so Guth, that's how guthrum uh, uh guthrum, um, chesterton moves this mm. into our context and just as we think about what it means to be christians in this world um, yeah, we're not, as, as, as the scriptures tell us, we're not struggling with flesh and blood. 
but we're struggling with the powers and the principalities of, of this age. Our war is not as easy as just heaving a sword against the pagan. Our war is for, for hearts and minds. And, um, and as Christ says, to advance his kingdom with the proclamation of, of his truth. So, bell out of the white horse. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I think this was good. I really, really enjoyed this. And I hope that the listeners are moved to go read this, yeah. you know, and read good literature. It's just, it's potent and it's powerful. And uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you for your time. Thank you. Yeah. If uh, if anyone wanted to learn more from you or hear more of this powerful speech of yours, where would one go? Well, they could attend my church. I don't have, you know, I don't have a website or mm -hmm. I don't broadcast anything at this time. So, uh, yeah, they could attend Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church. That's about all. And what, where is that located? Edgerton, Ohio. Edgerton, Ohio. Yep. Mm -hmm. And are your sermons online? No. No. Not at this time. Okay. Any of your written stuff online? Um. Well, I've had some publications. Yeah, I have one article on Clement of Rome mm -hmm. there in the Concordia Theological Quarterly. You can get that on the website. Um, I write for the local paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't, and they do have an online. That's what Chesterton presence. did as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but aside from that, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been a joy yeah. and uh, we'll definitely have you on again someday. Thanks, man. All right. Appreciate it. God bless and cheers. Yeah. Let's cheers. go get some burgers. Yeah. Yeah.